If baseball were different, how different would it be? And if this thought haunts your dreams, well, stick around and see what Ben and Meg have to say philosophically and pedantically. It's effectively wild. Effectively wild! Hello and welcome to episode 2131 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. 2131, like Cal Ripken, we are breaking Lou Gehrig's record of consecutive games here, 2130. Still a few more years of episodes until our total catches up to Cal, though. We got yeah. a ways to go. Yeah, I was going to say. You know, I don't know that we can actually count this as challenging Cal because even I take some episodes off. Right. So effectively, Wild has had that many yes. episodes, but no one host of Effectively mm-hmm. Wild. We take days off every now and then. Every for, now and again. <laughs> for major life events, <laughs> which. Yeah, uh, like taking <laughs> vacation or feeling sick. Sometimes Ben's like, yeah. I must be dead before I cannot pot. And I'm like, no, but you can take a vacation day if you need to, though. I must literally have a daughter. <laughs> in order to take some significant time off the podcast. But Cal Ripken got half the year off just about, you know. I mean, consecutive games, sure, impressive, but he got plenty of vacay when the wow. season was not going on. <laughs> you know, wow, we, ben- we don't take a single week off. Cal uh-huh. took plenty of weeks and months at a time off. Uh-huh. Slacker, really. Uh-huh. I want to um, say two things. First of all, didn't think that you would be um, a Cal Ripken truther, which yeah. is what you are presenting yourself as here. And second of all, second of all, Ben, we could take a whole week off. You know, a lot of we people, could. they don't do stuff between Christmas and New Year's. You know, they, <laughs> they don't. And, you know, look, some of us, is it the reason that some of us went to the mountains for Christmas this year? No, that's too strong. But like, uh, it did occur to me, you know, like oh, I can't record up here. I don't know that the Wi-Fi no, will support the Wi-Fi it. Although was too weak. <laughs> I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna confess something, Ben. Mm-hmm. I got up there, and I realized I think the Wi-Fi would have been fine. <laughs> but I didn't have a mic, and you know. Now you tell a, me months yeah, after the fact. I after waited. Those episodes are safely recorded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. Well, now that I've questioned Cal Ripken's Iron Man credentials, Jeez. No, I'm not uh, casting doubt uh-huh. upon that achievement. I mean, maybe uh-huh. he should have taken a day off. Maybe he, he should have taken played better, no. but yeah. oh, it's an so impressive here, accomplishment. Here, here, Ben is. He's like, it's actually not that big of an accomplishment, and also he sucked, and he wouldn't have sucked if he had taken a day off. Man, we had just gotten Orioles fans off our backs, and now here you are. <laughs> yeah, new part owner of the Orioles. We're going after here, Cal. Well, we couldn't take this week off because we're in the thick of team preview season here. We're on a tight schedule. We got to keep the previews coming. And today we will be previewing two teams as usual. Now, we're not going to talk about the Giants today. We keep uh, kicking the can down the road. Apologies to Giants fans. Just because we got to get Grant Brisby on the podcast to do our, I mean, it's a tradition. And Grant's been going to Arizona and coming from Arizona. And the times just haven't synced up. However, we have booked him for next week, I Mm -hmm. promise. 
mm-hmm. but we're not saying anything negative about the Giants by putting them behind the teams that no. we are previewing. Even though we go in projection order loosely, we try to loosely. stick to that, but we make an exception in order to get grants. So, yeah, I mean, the poor Giants, they've been snubbed enough, right? And who knows, maybe by the time we talk to Grant, they'll have signed a major free agent. We'll see. It could be true. Although, you know, if they do, it might be because Tristan Beck is dealing with like an aneurysm mm. in his arm. Not good. I would just invite the Giants to continue to focus in on the fact that you can do good stuff without, you know, it being the result of other catastrophe. But we hope you're on the men soon. Scary thing. Well, we'll discuss that next week. Today, we will be previewing the Philadelphia Phillies with Matt Gelb of The Athletic, followed by The Angels with Sam Blum of The Athletic. The Shohei Otani-less angels, as we will discuss, and that's another reason why we couldn't take this week off, because we would have missed major news, (laughs) at least in some circles. Uh Now, if you do not care about Shohei Otani's marital status, I would invite you to look at the podcast description here. There will be a conveniently supplied timestamp that will direct you to the end of any content related to Shohei Otani's uh, marital status. However, if you're interested, listen Mm -hmm. on because major, major news, middle of the night news where I was, though not in Japan, no one knew it. The Mm -hmm. Shobays didn't know it. The Japanese press didn't know it. The Dodgers didn't know it. But Shohei Otani is a married man as he just dropped in an Instagram announcement. I was gobsmacked when I saw this. This was huge news, which says something about Shohei Otani because I don't think there's a single other player I would really care about their relationship status that much. I mean, if they got married to a man, that might be news. But anyone else, I just don't think I would pay much attention. Even players that we have obsessed over, I just haven't really delved into their personal lives. Uh, Mike Trout, we've talked about every hypothetical, every aspect of his performance. He got married. He had a kid. It wasn't a major talking point on Effectively Wild. But Shohei Otani is a celebrity in addition to being a great baseball player. And he's also someone people are interested in on a personal level, maybe partly because he keeps that so Mm -hmm. secret and Mm -hmm. plays things close to the vest. So to go from no one knowing anything about his relationship status... Yeah. Is he dating anyone? Has he ever dated anyone? No one knew. And to go from that... To, I'm married. It's very sudden. That is zero to 60 when it comes to making your relationship status public. I'm of so many minds, you know, because on the one hand, I don't feel like he owes us this even. He just like yeah. objectively doesn't owe us any explanation of his personal life. I should find that the inclusion of the dog in the corner of the Instagram <laughs> post to be very tiny, funny. Tiny little dog face in the yeah. bottom right. Yeah, because I was like... I mean, he didn't marry the dog because his dog is there, no. though. Mm-hmm. The yeah, dog. caused some confusion. I didn't think he had, was announcing <laughs> he was marrying a dog, Ben. Although, I gotta say, I continue to think something wrong with that dog. Um, <laughs> I think the dog is perfectly normal and cute. Dog. You're a Cal Ripken Jr. truther, and I yeah. am a showy dog truther. Um, mm-hmm. Too many truthers in our modern age. But I fret on his behalf a little bit because... I am very different than Shohei Otani in, like, a lot of obvious ways. But I think that, like, I do have a little bit of experience with some, not all, or even most people reacting to, like, 
a little bit of disclosure about mm. your personal life and going, you have opened the door to all disclosure. You know, like mm-hmm. the door is open, the window is wedged, the curtains mm-hmm. are a flapping. There's mm-hmm. that dog. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder what motivated the decision to make the announcement because mm-hmm. it is only going to inspire more questions and perhaps escalating interest and attention. Although, is it possible to pay more attention to him? That's a fair <laughs> question to ask. Yeah. But is the issue here, Ben, that he was like, oh, I'm going to have to wear one of those little silicon uh, wedding rings and mm. people are going to be like, what's up with that? You know, <laughs> Yeah, that would have been a giveaway. I continue to find the decision t- to wear those when they match the team colors fascinating (laughs) i've maybe said this before but if my husband was wearing a team themed wedding ring i'd be like who you married to sweets because it wasn't blue when we said i do um because the dodgers a lot of the dodgers do that i got that anyway i hope that otani's happy and uh, i hope that he is afforded the level of privacy he wants and i'm not confident remotely that that will happen so those are my thoughts (laughs) on it Not at all. Yeah. I'm just mostly impressed that he pulled this off for so long. I know. Just when you think you can't be more impressed by Shohei Utani, despite that level of interest. I don't want to call it subterfuge because that makes it sound negative, as you said. He's entitled to keep these things private if if he wants to. But just the the cloak and dagger, the the clandestine nature of this relationship. The man is a vault. Not a sieve. We saw how he conducted his free agent negotiations, right. how important privacy was to him. Clearly, he was not disclosing even to those teams that right. he was married or about to be married. So he really wants to keep some things to himself. And yeah. so much of his life and any professional athlete's life is public. So yeah. I get it. But yeah. of course, people are going to be interested in Shohei Otani. And the people most interested in Shohei Otani are, of course, the show base, mm. the fans of Shohei Otani. We have had the foremost Shobei on Effectively Wild. Portia, the queen of the Shobeys, was on episode 2090 with me. She runs the Twitter account at Shohei Save Us, which is kind of a clearinghouse for all Shohei Otani-related information and media. And so as soon as I saw this news... My thoughts turned to her, as Mm -hmm. did the thoughts of some of our listeners who were posting Mm -hmm. about that in the Patreon Discord group. I wanted to know, how did she learn that this happened? Because I learned middle of the night where I was, and you know the meme that's like, babe, wake up, whatever? I literally did that. I I woke my wife up. Now, granted, she was on the couch where she had fallen asleep, and I was going to wake her up anyway so that she could come to bed. But I did do the babe, wake up. Shohei Otani is married. Yeah. And together, we listened in to a Twitter space where the showbase had congregated to discuss this news, you know, kind of a, a public room where people can go. You know how in the Twitter sidebar you yeah. see sometimes uh, in the upper right-hand corner, it'll show like on your some active space and it'll show someone you follow maybe is listening to yes. that kind of creepily. <laughs> yeah. Craig Goldstein sent me a screenshot of like the showbay talking about Otani being married space and it said Ben Lindbergh is listening. I was like, yep, you got me. So that's public too, just like... Like Shohei Otani's marital status. So as my wife and I were listening in, and to be clear, I don't think I've been 
in a Twitter space since Ron DeSantis attempted to announce his candidacy in one. And that went very badly, as everyone expected it to. Mm. Hopefully, this uh, marriage will go better than that run for president. But So many jokes I cannot make. <laughs> the mood in the Twitter space at that time in the immediate aftermath of this announcement was apocalyptic, would be one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> As, I don't want to like, I'm sorry. I, that was like, it was a cackle. It sounded like a cackle. As they say in the UK, it was absolute scenes. It was uh, chaos. It was tumult. Bedlam. Bedlam mm. would be another excellent term for it. A couple of quotes that I, I jotted down as I was listening. Someone said, there will forever be a permanent void in my heart. How can I get married knowing my husband isn't going to be Shohei? Tough act to follow, I guess. Tough to measure up. Someone else said that he could have waited for Friday at least so that they could go drinking. I heard lamentations. I heard denial. I heard some happiness and some celebration and some well wishes. But as one person put it, congratulations, Shohei. I'm happy for you, but I'm not happy for me. So it was uh, sort of the, the end times. You know, someone, someone yeah. said, I guess I've got to install the dating apps again. I guess they had held off in hopes that uh, Shohei would pick them. That didn't mm -hmm. happen. So they got to go back on the market. Someone else said, see, it's about to rain here soon. Even the skies are mad. Um, I just, uh, <laughs> like, look. There are uh, different approaches to fandom. I don't want to, it's not like I've, I've never had like a, a celebrity crush or anything, sure, you know. nothing wrong with that, yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm sounding much more judgmental than I mean to. It's just like not a way that I relate to this particular person and so sure. i am struggling yeah. to be like to <laughs> muster that when you messaged me about this announcement which i was asleep mm -hmm. um and then i saw it in the morning when i came into my office and i was like oh here's my phone i thought something catastrophic had befallen him <laughs> like um that he had been like in a car accident or no. um you know like some new injury had revealed itself overnight mm -hmm. and then i saw that he had gotten married <laughs> yeah, um just the opposite glad tidings and i was like oh so he's fine yeah is he's, he's more than fine <laughs> is what you're saying is like mm -hmm. he's fine although can we take a moment to like uh appreciate the way that he <laughs> describe his new wife have you <laughs> yes. seen the have you seen these tweets about how yes. he described his new wife yes yeah. the translation the, at least was uh, yeah. that what she's just normal a, <laughs> she's just a normal, a normal Japanese woman <laughs> yes <laughs> and, and I think you know he was trying to indicate that she's not like herself yes. a celebrity in some mm -hmm. fashion but yeah. it did make me think like does she live in Canada too, Shohei? Like, <laughs> right, you know, right. did make her sound a little less than real. <laughs> yes. I don't doubt that she is real, but I do, mm -hmm. I do worry about fervor that will possess various parties to try to figure out who she is, you know, and get yes, get a picture is, uh, of her. Already, so. already in progress. But uh, really? <laughs> we wish uh, Shohei the best. As he, he says, uh, I've begun a new life with someone from my native country of Japan who's very special to me, and I wanted everyone to know uh, I am now married. <laughs> well, it's a, and it's such a nice thing. And look, I am not above. I've made myself sound high and mighty. And so I'm going to, I will admit to being 
neither high nor mighty, which is like, I've conducted Twitter or Instagram is actually a more fertile ground for this sort of thing. Investigations into Mm -hmm. various athletes to be like, what's what's that little gal's name, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I am an excellent Instagram detective. I just want everybody to know. So I'm not above that. You know, I I saw a player who shall remain nameless embrace a a young gal in the course of postseason celebrations last year. And I was like, you have a little girlfriend. I'm going to find out who she is. And I did, Mm -hmm. Ben. But you know what I did after that? Nothing. I didn't do anything after that because I was sure. like, okay, my curiosity is now satisfied. Thank We've you. We've all done a, harm, a little harmless uh, internet stalking, non-invasive. You know. Stalking is so much stronger it's than what term. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse you. Sleuthing. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Sleuthing. Okay. Sleuthing. But look, is okay. it sleuthing if there's a hard launch? I mean, no. The answer to that is no. Look, it's a hard launch. It out there. Yeah. By definition, there's mm-hmm. no sleuthing involved. So yes. I do want to know what's going on with that dog. You know, I still am not <laughs> the satisfied. The dog is fine. I'm telling no, you, the dog is adorable. Dog a normal is dog, just nor- like the normal A normal life. human dog. <laughs> <laughs> a normal human dog. Uh, okay. Mm. I think my favorite tweet that I saw was, thank you, Shohei Otani, for announcing you are married. I am now free from delusional mindset. I am now free from my liking of men. <laughs> oh. So that's one other reaction like that entirely? someone could have to this. Yep. Just Look, swearing, I know he swearing is, off all of us. I know that he is singular in a great many ways. Mm-hmm. And I also know that many men are trash. Um, <laughs> but there are other good ones out there, I imagine, you know, who so. might not yeah. be global baseball phenoms, mm-hmm. but are, you know, otherwise able to like reach things in tall places and sure. be a shoulder <laughs> to cry on. So don't mm-hmm. don't worry about it. Well, since uh, your feelings about this were confined to what we've already discussed, I have <laughs> reached out to Portia, the show bay, by uh, request in our Discord group and, and also my request, because I just wanted to get kind of a temperature check, a, a wellness check on her, on the show bay community, which has been roiled by this news. So she's going to sort of sum up what Shohei said in his press conference, the few details he dropped and the many details he did not drop. And uh, she will tell us a little bit about how this news has been received by the people who are maybe most interested in it. It is the middle of the night in the Philippines where Portia is, but she would have been awake anyway, and it's probably hard to sleep now that we know that Shohei Otani is off the market. So, Portia, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, It's great to be back. I didn't know how podcast works before, but it was really fun. Thank, Thank you for having me again. Very happy to have you, although I guess difficult circumstances is an exciting time possibly also a disappointing time. So I found out about Shohei. I was about to post the previous episode of our podcast, and then our producer, Shane, messaged me and said, you might want to add a note to the outro. And he sent me a link to Shohei's announcement. That was the middle of the night for me. It was afternoon where you are. So how did you find out? I assume that you have notifications of some sort set up for when Shohei posts. So how were you alerted to this post? Actually, I didn't see his Instagram post. I saw it on the group chat. Ah. But the group chat was so fast. They were talking about it in a, in a second that he posted it. <laughs> yeah, everyone was having a mental breakdown already. And I was preparing my food. I was about to sit down. 
And I had the shock of my life. I'm like, what the? <laughs> Whoa. Big news. And you lost your appetite immediately, I assume. Yeah. The food went cold. <laughs> it was a nice lunch. It was a perfect lunch for me. I was smiling because I had a soup. I had my rice. I had fish. I had everything worked out. <laughs> but Shohei Otani had other plans. So, Oh, yeah. The group chat that you mentioned, you've mentioned that the last time you were on the show, all the showbase uh, communicate kind of in private. But then also you went live publicly in Twitter spaces. I was listening in a little. I was eavesdropping on the immediate reaction. Ooh. So how would you <laughs> sum up the reaction in the showbay community to this announcement? Okay, right after the announcement, I immediately did uh, space because the group chats were insane. All of my messages were full. There was so many things going on and I and I couldn't catch up with everything because there's so many group chats and people privately messaging me. So I just said emergency space. And that space went really crazy. There was like almost 400 people on it. It was a big shock. It came out of nowhere. Yes, exactly. And you're the most plugged in person I know to everything that's going on with Shohei personally and professionally. Did you have any inkling, any suspicion? Was there any clue that this could have happened before the announcement? There was a bit of a clue, but we were too blinded <laughs> to accept those clues. And now when we were talking together, we realized, oh, we were we were acting dumb and delulu about the whole thing. We were too much into our heads that it can it what it's not gonna happen this year. Like, oh Shoy's gonna gonna get his World Series ring first before he commits into a relationship. That's how we go. And we always check his skin and his lips. Because we were always we will always talk about oh there's no way he's he's with someone. No girl would let would let his guy have dry skin and dry <laughs> lips. We are happy for him, but maybe next time don't don't throw a bomb <laughs> or something. Yeah, break it to you more gently somehow. Yeah, Just you know break it to me gently. This is very typical for Japanese famous people like actors and athletes. They will suddenly announce they are married. Mm -hmm. So we all know that this will happen soon, but not this soon. Right. So yeah, that's the most shocking thing. Yeah, the wedding ring before the World Series ring. And I don't know if you can tell cosmetically because I'm a married man and uh, I don't use chapstick. So I don't know that you could tell, but I've seen that you have shared some photos uh, in the aftermath of the announcement and you said, how could we not know? He was glowing, of course, you know, now that we know. Yes. But, but was it purely cosmetic that just, oh, he looks a little bit different? He looks happier he's using a new hair product or was there any other kind of i mean there were no sightings or, or anything more concrete yeah. like that right the dog when we talked about it we always talk about who's gonna take care of the dog he's alone yeah i asked you about that and, and you said that that ipe's wife maybe was yeah, was dog sitting we, we were, yeah we were so blinded about that <laughs> we always say oh ipe's wife will take care of it but she has like four dogs already and the dog is a very active dog it's not a simple pet dog the toy dog kind it's an active dog 
So you need to put an effort with that. So are you thinking now that decoy really was a decoy, that he wanted us to focus on the dog so that we would not focus on another relationship in his life, that that maybe the fact that he got a dog was a sign that he was in a relationship or or was it just distraction? It was a distraction. Yeah, everyone was just thinking so much of the dog that no one really cared about what he's doing. Definitely a decoy, such a perfect name. So it seems like the showbase have gone through the stages of grief very quickly, denial, bargaining, acceptance, etc. Have you seen that happen? Has the mood already changed over the half a day or so that we've known this news? There's a bit of a difference. The first space, it was crazy. Uh, we were fake crying. Fake, it's not really fake crying, but we were crying, someone singing karaoke, People sharing playlists about heartbreak. <laughs> and that first space was such a mess. But we did another one. The second one is more tamed. It's more on acceptance and sharing speculations because the Japanese news world is also going insane. And I know that the Shopeis want the best for Shohei. They want him to be happy. And even when he was single, and if you were single, you had to know the odds were against you, you know, <laughs> that uh, a lot of women in the world and uh, a lot of people who like Shohei Otani. And so it was always mm -hmm. a long shot, right? And so is there a big part of you then that's just happy that he found someone? Uh... Kind of, but <laughs> if I'm just basing this on other Japanese actors and actresses and other famous athletes, they will never reveal the wife. Mm -hmm. If there's going to be a photo, it's going to be blurred. If she's not a public figure, they will never reveal her name or her face. Right. Or hand-drawn sketch like Hideki Matsui's wife. Yeah, definitely. I, I think he's going Hideki Matsui here. The thing is, though, that as famous as Matsui was, Otani is even more famous probably by an order of magnitude, not just in Japan, but yes. internationally. And so it's got to be difficult to maintain that secrecy. Now, he's done it so far, but... You expect that we will never really know much more than we know now, or it will sort of be known but not acknowledged? It's going to be like an open secret, I bet, because there's no way you can stop people from seeing you, especially in the U.S. I've seen a lot of uh, random people who know Shoei. They will take photos of him. I don't share most of them because they're, they're quite private. Yeah. For Japanese media, there's a strict rule about Shohei. You don't share anything about his family, photos or whatever, or you get banned from covering him. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, as, as much as you want to know about Otani, you want to respect his privacy, too. Yes. And Hideki Matsui had the same thing, I think, with yeah. the name of, of his dog as well, not not just the identity of his wife. And, yeah. And Ichiro, too, I think, at least for yeah, a, a time, I right? Remember, yeah. I remember Ichiro. He didn't share his dog's name. Yes, exactly. That's maybe what I was thinking of. And, and Otani. 
Otani, of course, was kind of cagey about the dog's name at first, but he did eventually divulge that. So I wonder whether that means mm-hmm. he, he will eventually introduce his wife or, or say who she is or whether he really will maintain just a, a strict secrecy policy. Do you have any idea how it would have been possible for him to get to the point of marrying someone without anyone having one whiff of the fact that he was in a relationship just in the sense of, as we talked about last time, there's paparazzi, right? There are people following him around. How would it be possible for them to spend a lot of time together physically without someone being aware of that? I don't know how he did that, but if I'm going to use other artists as an example, because I do follow a lot of Japanese entertainment news. Usually most, if you follow some Japanese news, they will reveal that they got married or they're in a relationship. And the only thing they always say is a common friend introduced them to each other. Mm. That's it. That's the most common reason. Like they did not meet by chance or whatever. It was an introduction. If he will reveal it, I think he will do it very slowly. Not like, here's my wife. (laughs) We're married. Right. Although I guess he did reveal that he was married very suddenly and and also revealed that he had a dog very suddenly. You know, the dog was just in a video one day. So maybe he's changing his ways and not doing it the Japanese way anymore. Maybe he's going very American. We don't know. Maybe. Maybe he's like, yeah, I'm staying in the U.S. for 10 more years. Why? I don't need to be like a Japanese entertainment world. The thing about Shohei is he's so deliberate, right? He always has a plan and a long-term plan. Of course, when he was a teenager or a kid, he he wrote down his goals and he wanted to be married by a certain age and he wanted to win a World Series and an MVP and all of that, right? So he doesn't seem like the sort of person to really rush into a commitment like this, to have a a whirlwind romance and you meet someone and you Mm -hmm. get married immediately. He seems like he always approaches things in a very thoughtful, planned way. It probably is like a long-distance relationship, Mm -hmm. but then they suddenly decided to live together. I'm amazed how he did that because um, there are some people who have spotted him walking the dog. Yeah, you know it all. You you knew the name of the dog before it was publicly reported. You were telling me those things. <laughs> I trust you yeah. as a source. And so if you didn't know, then they really kept a tight lid on this thing. Yeah, that's amazing. Because usually I won't believe if there is no proof. If I see something, they're just like pure talk. I won't believe it. There has been some rumors last year, but I was like, <laughs> no way. <laughs> maybe now, maybe yes. It was a yes thing. Shohei did address the press in Japanese on Thursday afternoon, and you watched and listened naturally to his comments. So tell us the main takeaways. As suspected, he wouldn't say anything about the wife. No name, no whoever she is. It's I think it's going to be a well-kept secret. Mm -hmm. We might see a photo, but we will never know. He made a few jokes about how annoying the, the Japanese journalists are. So he decided to just, yeah, I'm going to announce it now before the season starts. Because you guys were, he said, urusai, which kind of means noisy or annoying in Japanese. Because mm. you guys are being annoying. And he was laughing and everyone was laughing too. That joke was only for the Japanese reporters. 
I don't think Shoei thinks the American media is annoying. The Japanese reporters are really rapid. I mean, they're just doing their job, but he doesn't want distractions. And he implied that his wife is not a celebrity? Yes. There's a thing about in Japan where when you say a public figure, they're either someone who, who is known publicly, like an athlete or a, like an actress. But there are speculation that this woman is a retired former athlete. So technically, she's now a normal person. And what did he share about the timeline and how this relationship developed? Choi said he doesn't know the exact time that they met, maybe around three years. But Ipe said three to four years. Kind of correcting him. <laughs> I was thinking the same. And maybe um, Ipe is better at numbers. So he said three to four years. And they never went on a date outside because of the, the journalists, he said, are annoying. They only do it inside. And they got engaged last year. That's the only thing he said. But someone asked if getting decoy was because he was getting married. He said, no, he's been thinking about it for a long time. He's, he was not living with his wife yet. So he, he said he was just alone with Dikoi taking care of him during his recovery process. And he also said he did not go home. So, But he did also say that she was now in Arizona. Yeah, so I think they just moved in together. That's quite awesome. Yeah, and we still don't know, I guess, exactly when they got married, right? And I guess we also don't know if they've been together that entire three to four year time? Yes, because Shoy's very baseball driven. He also said like the wife knows all about how he works and she understands everything, like how it goes. He's really baseball focused, but the difference is now he has he has a wife. He's clearly married to baseball also, right? So it's sort of a, yep. it's an open marriage of sorts. So was he pressed at all by the Japanese journalist? Did they try to get more information and details out of him and he oh, yes. refused? He, he will say vague things. Like someone, uh, a reporter asked what kind of proposal words did he say or what did he do? Mm -hmm. And he said he just said it normally. That's it. It's like very normal questions. I think most of the journalists were afraid to ask anything invasive. Yeah. Anything more too close to being too personal. Someone even asked when was the exact marriage date. He said he doesn't want to say it because he thinks it's not important for everyone to know. So, yeah. Very normal interview from him. Well, I'm sure the showbase have many, many questions, many of which may never be answered. With the recent space that we talked about, because in Japan, there's so many speculation of who the girl is. Of course. And there's so many, like you cannot keep up. And there's a lot of like, they're showing clues that this is her, this is her, this is that. So, yeah, yeah, we are curious about who she is, but we're also will be happy if we don't know who she is. Like she's <laughs> like she semi doesn't exist. <laughs> right. If you, if we find out, then it'll be real. You can kind of pretend yeah, that it's not true. We're like in a limbo of we want to know her, but we don't want to know her. <laughs> we're still coping. Yeah. So every time everyone's emotions are fluctuating. So right now, I'm okay. Because right now, Shoy released a new commercial 
video mm-hmm. and you look so amazing. So I'm totally happy right now. <laughs> right before we did this podcast. So I'm happy. <laughs> so maybe if he didn't release that, I would be like really sad. Like, oh. Well, that's good. I, I would hate for Otani to be a painful subject for you because I know he's brought so much joy to your life that if, oh, it, yeah. if it were you know painful when you saw him looking so good and you knew that he could never be yours and you could not enjoy <laughs> him the same way, that would be sad for me because I've enjoyed your coverage of him and, and the larger Shobei fandom. So I'm sure it'll take some time to process. You'll come to terms oh, with it yeah. eventually. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, three to five business days. Definitely, <laughs> and hopefully we get babies. We get babies. We get, Show yeah, babies. So cute ones, please, and tall. We need the genes working for the future. <laughs> well, you you and the other showbiz will be in our thoughts. I wish you the Thank best. You. And uh, of course, we wish the best to Shohei, but also we'll be thinking of the showbiz at this difficult time. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to Portia. And I guess we, we got to go to the sorry girls he's married text when Dodgers broadcasts are on like they did with John Lennon on the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> I, I hope that uh, Shohei's marriage will be happier and last longer than John's at the time was. <laughs> but uh, I didn't know where you were going to go with that one. I was <laughs> no. like on the edge of my seat. Does see where you went with that one, Ben? Yeah, I guess I could have gone in a number of directions. Anyway, <laughs> that's all the Shohei Otani nuptials content that we have for you right now. So mm. I have uh, one little perfect segue, I think, from Shohei into our previews. It is a quick little stat blast. Take me out of data set, sort it by something like. ERA minus or OPS plus. Tease out tidbits, analyze it for us. We'll take a data set, sort it by something like ERA minus or OPS plus. And then we'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's This stat blast is related to Shohei and also to the Angels because, you know, the Angels have already moved on and they have assigned a uniform number to Hunter Dozier that used to belong to Shohei Otani. Yeah, Hunter Dozier is a normal human man (laughs) and baseball player. Hunter Dozier is the new number 17 for the Angels. And again, tough act to follow. Sam Blum, who's about to be our guest tweeted, I asked Hunter Dozier last week about wearing number 17 for the Angels immediately after Shohei Otani, told him all the fans would already have his jersey, and Dozier said there's going to be a lot of 17s at Angel Stadium. Just don't look at the last name. Look at the number. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, look, it's a healthy, self-deprecating attitude to have there. Maybe some people will buy number 17 Hunter Dozier jerseys, too. We did a stat blast recently about hand-me-down jerseys where a player would play for a team that had already had a player with the same surname and the same number. But this is going to be a stat blast about following 
a player with the same number and how high or low you can go after that. Because in Craig Calcaterra's newsletter, Cup of Coffee this week, he said, I'm willing to bet that there has not been a bigger one season fall off in player quality for a given number on a given team in baseball history then the one that going from 2023 Shohei Otani to whatever is left of Hunter Dozier at this point in time represents. That obviously sounded like a stat blast prompt. And so I directed this to Kenny Jacklin of Baseball Reference, keeper of the uniform number, jersey number data. And he sent me a spreadsheet, which I will share, of the top 100 differentials from one season to the next in Baseball Reference War produced by different players on the same team wearing the same uniform number, okay? So this is the top 100 in either direction, positive or negative. If we want to answer Craig's question, the biggest single-season drop-off in war, same team, same number, different player, it's actually a combo of players that Craig guessed in his newsletter. Mm. It's the fall-off from 1992 Barry Bonds wearing... 24 for the Pirates to 1993 Dennis Miller wearing 24 for the Pirates. And that was a drop off from 9.0 baseball reference war to negative one baseball reference war. So that was a full 10 war drop off from one season to the next. So that's the number to beat or not beat if you're Hunter Dozier. Otani had a 10 war total to himself in baseball reference war. So as long as Dozier produces positive war value for the Angels this year, then he would stay off the top or bottom of this list. But okay. he's got to be he's got to be in positive territory in order to make that happen. The other biggest drop-offs, let's see, Philadelphia 1932 to 1933 number 24, we went from Ed Holly and Flint Rem to Jess Flint Rem. That was negative 9.7 war. The 98 to 99 Padres, number 27, Kevin Brown to Heath Murray. That was a negative 9.2. New York Mets, number 44, 91 to 92. Tim Burke, David Cohn, Howard Johnson to Tim Burke, Tom Filer, and Ryan Thompson. That was a negative 8.9. Other recent entries, Dodgers, 2015 to 2016, number 21. They went from Zach Greinke to Trace Thompson. That was a negative 8.8. .8. And then 98 to 99, Blue Jays, number 21, Roger Clemens to Willis Otanez, negative 8.5. Got some other name brands on here. Jimmy Fox to Frankie Hayes for Philadelphia, 35 to 36. That was negative 8.4. It's a long list. I'll put it all online. In positive territory, though, the biggest single year increases. Phillies, again, 1971 to 1972, number 32. We went from negative 0.2 war for Daryl Brandon to Steve Carlton's 12.5 in his excellent 72 season. So that's a gain of 12.7. That is the record from one year to the next. And again, full leaderboard available. Normal. Japanese woman. I feel I, I I'm not trying to make the showbiz feel bad. I want that to be mm -hmm. clear. Like I, I get it. You you They feel care, bad enough as it is right now. You care but. about a thing and it mm -hmm. it's different now and you're yeah. grappling with a new reality for this thing you care about. Like it's mm -hmm. I get it. 
I get it. I feel like I was mean. I didn't didn't mean to be mean. (laughs) I get it, you guys. I'm sorry. It's a a wholesome affection, I think, that they have for for Shohei on the whole, you know? Completely agree. Yeah, they're they're interested in Shohei in a different way than other people are interested in sure. Shohei, but also the other way too. They like him as a player. They like him as a person. Yeah, you know, they have a two way affection in, for him. You exactly, could say. all there aspects of of Shohei Otani. All right, let's take a quick break, and we will preview the Phillies and then the Angels. And as you were saying to me earlier, the the Phillies really were trailblazers when it comes to revealing uniforms or at least mm. showing some skin. Even even before maybe the pants were semi-transparent mm-hmm. and the uniforms were thinner and lighter, mm-hmm. they were just going to unbutton those jerseys. Yeah. They would show us those chests, whether it was through the uniform or not. They would just uh, unbuckle. They would not unbuckle. They would they would unbutton. <laughs> Hopefully not unbuckle. Oh, I my mean, goodness, Ben. Oh, anyway. <laughs> been a ride. Been a ride of an intro we've had it over sure here. sure has. We'll be right back with Matt Gelb of The Athletic. Well, it's moments like these that make you ask, how can you not be horny about baseball? Every take hot and hotter, entwining and abutting, watch them climb big mountain. Nothing's about nothing, every stitch wet with sweat, breaking balls back, me on effectively, well, how can you not be horny? When it comes to podcasts, how can you not be horny? All right, we are back, and we are ready to preview the Philadelphia Phillies with the help of Matt Gelb, who covers the Phillies for The Athletic and returns to the show. Hello, Matt. Hi, Ben. Hi, Meg. Well, it's been a successful couple seasons for your Philadelphia Phillies. They won a pennant, lost in the World Series. They then made it to the NLCS, lost in Game 7. We are used to them... Always going all in, always adding Dave Dombrowski, always being super aggressive. But this offseason was a bit of a change of pace. They took something off. They didn't do a whole lot in terms of major transactions. Was that just a reflection of team was pretty solid? They didn't have a whole lot of holes to fill. Was it payroll related that they finally maxed out? I guess, was it more a question of resources or opportunities? I think it was more about opportunities and not resources. Um, yeah. You know, again, they're going to have, you know, likely a top five payroll in the sport. Um, they're going to have the biggest payroll they've ever had. It's going to go into the second tier uh, of luxury tax penalties. I think it was more they looked at this roster and was like, okay, where can we upgrade? What is, what is the opportunity cost of, of upgrading at some of these spots? You know, maybe number four starter or your fifth reliever or your fourth outfielder. And they generally came to the conclusion that they liked what they had. And I think it's a decent conclusion. I know it's like, you know, I think it's frustrated some Phillies fans over the offseason because they have been accustomed to, you know, the splash move, the big signing that has been their MO the last few offseasons. But um, objectively, this is a good roster. It's a roster that should have won the National League again. Like, I, I, I maybe that sounds ridiculous. They didn't win the series, but um, you know, they're up 3-2 coming home. Really, those five games they played after the first two uh, were five of the worst games together that they played all year. Uh, it was just poor timing. And does that mean that everything was broken? I don't think so. Their biggest acquisition, you know, where their biggest move was bringing Aaron Nola back for seven years. And, you know, this spring they're trying to extend Zach Wheeler. I mean, those would be their two biggest moves of the offseason. But I think it's a core that is very much still like win-now mode. It's not like this is a core of aging players. They actually had the second fewest plate appearances last year to guys 33 and older. 
and all of them were Josh Harrison, who's not back. This is a group that has, you know, I think some real prime years left. And I understand, you know, why they didn't necessarily go make the big splash they've done in the past. I wanted to ask you about the extension or re-signing, I suppose, technically, that was with Aaron Nola and the extension that might be with Zach Wheeler first. Was there really ever any chance that Nola wasn't going to re-sign with the Phillies? And then if you had to put odds on it, what do you think the chances are that Wheeler and the Phillies get an extension done at some point this year? I think there was a chance that Nola wasn't coming back. You know, in the end, I mean, this is about... I mean, it's a, it's about where they were at, you know, close to where they were at, you know, last spring. I mean, they talked last spring, both sides, and they were, you know, optimistic that they get a deal. But, you know, the Phillies didn't want to move off of the amount of years and Nola didn't want to move off a certain AAV. Um, in the end, I think they met in the middle and that's what the, that's what they got, the deal that they came to. Um, I do think he wanted to see what else was out there. You know, we look back on it now and he ends up signing what was the, Second biggest pitcher contract of the offseason just behind Yamamoto. So, you know, maybe he maybe he could have gotten more if he went elsewhere. I don't think so. But I, I think it was still a decent deal for both sides. As for Wheeler, <laughs> like percent odds, like I, I think there's a strong chance they get something done. I do. Like, I think it's it's better than 50-50. I think it's closer to like 70%. And I think they're looking at, you know, more of a short-term, higher AAV type deal. I think both sides are interested in that. Yeah. The Phillies and Wheeler. Like, I think he, I don't know how many more years, like, he necessarily wants to pitch beyond, like, a three or four year extension. Um, and, like, my gosh, I mean, like, look at the contract that they signed him to five years. Uh, I think it was 118 and a half million. It has to be one of the best free agent pitcher contracts in yeah. modern baseball history. I mean, this guy has been unbelievable for them. Uh, you know, he's exceeded all expectations. So I do think there's a lot of interest in trying to get it done. I think they have a lot of reasons to believe. You know, he could age well. He does not have the kind of tread that, you know, pitchers his age typically do, starting pitchers do. I mean, if you compare innings, it's crazy how much fewer innings. Like, just go look at Madison Bumgarner. He's got like a thousand fewer innings than Bumgarner did at this time in his career. So I think there's interest in both sides, and I think they can get it done. Seems to me that people still think of the Phillies for their bats, right? The DH, just the old school grip it and rip it guys. And they certainly do have a lot of those, but this is a pitching powerhouse. I don't know that we can say it's a pitching and defense team. At least the defense improved as last season went on. And we can certainly talk about that. But pitching wise, quite a contrast between our two teams that we're previewing today, because just eyeballing the fan graphs projections here, the Phillies have the number one projected bullpen in baseball and the number two projected starting rotation, which is not new. They've had strong starting pitching for a while, but you really got to give credit to Dave Dombrowski for addressing what was a perennial weakness for him, or at least it was perceived to be that he just couldn't build a bullpen. Now he has arguably built the best one in the game. And you've got Orion Kirkering for a full season now. Craig Kimbrell's gone. I don't think a lot of Phillies fans will miss him that much. <laughs> so break down this unit, I guess, of the the flame-throwing, fireballing bullpen and also the rotation, which, again, is uh, not new, just sort of same old, same strong unit. You're right. I mean, it was definitely not Dombrowski's strong suit, and this bullpen has largely been made by him. It's not a lot of homegrown talent. Sir Anthony Dominguez really was like the only holdover uh, from the previous regime, but one of Dave's, I think Dave's first trade was Jose Alvarado, you know, and that, that really set a tone. I mean, they have targeted velocity in their bullpen acquisitions from day one. Um, you've seen it in Alvarado. You see it in Gregory Soto. 
you see it in Jeff Hoffman, a guy who they ended up signing to a minor league deal who's thrown, you know, 97, 98 last year was a revelation for them. Uh, it was really good scouting at work, I think, by them. You know, the, the Matt Strom contract was really panned, right, last offseason. You know, understandably so. But, I mean, he was a remarkable addition for them last year. He did uh, everything. I mean, he started 10 games. He pitched multi-inning uh, roll out of the bullpen. He was, you know, through the last pitch of the NLDS uh, in the clinching game. You know, they got a huge contribution from him. But, yeah, Ben, I mean, this is this is a, a unit that features velocity. And, and, and this is how I think they really mastered the Braves in each of the last two NLDSs. Like, the velocity just plays so well in October. Um, it is a difference maker, uh, especially against the Braves. It was huge in a short series. You know, some of these guys, I think, did run out of gas. They were probably a righty reliever short last year. They they didn't have a set set closer. You know, Kimbrell kind of played in his way into that role during the summertime. Wasn't necessarily that guy late in the year, but um, had the track record, and they just they couldn't resist, um, you know, using him in those late situations in the NLCS. And I think had they had another righty reliever, um, they might have been able to do some different things. So I thought that was the one spot where they could go upgrade this offseason. And I, I, I do think they tried. Um, they were in on a bunch of different guys. Um, did not land them for various reasons, but uh, Kirkering, like you said, he's a homegrown guy, uh, fifth rounder in 2022. You get a full year of him, and you know I would not be surprised to see him pitching, you know, late in games, you know, in the not too distant future. So there's a lot of velocity there. They've built it mostly through trades and some free agency, but yes, it's it's uh, it's been velocity. Dave Dombrowski uh, has been chasing velocity. That's not something the Phillies really had before, and they have a lot of it now. And when we look to that rotation, you know, obviously, as Ben said, this is a lot of returning faces we're familiar with, Wheeler, Nola, Suarez, Walker, and Sanchez. Beyond that five, can you talk a bit about the depth they have behind that? Are there young guys who strike you as particularly likely to contribute should injury befall anyone in that group? Obviously, we're not going to see Andrew Painter this year, but among their guys at AAA, um, both on the 40-man and not, does anyone strike you as likely to get some big league run this year? Yeah, and Meg, this is this was their biggest weakness coming into the offseason. I I think it's probably still their biggest weakness, even though they yeah. did do some things to address it in the offseason. It's still not great. You know, the biggest name that's gonna stick out is Mick Abel, who, you know, we, we probably have some prospect fatigue with now, which sounds a little crazy, but I mean he's you know, he's twenty two and he's gonna be in triple A this year, and he was a pitcher drafted in the COVID year draft. Yeah. Um, he's he's on the right timeline. I mean, like he is getting to triple A uh, at age twenty two. He's probably going to be one of the youngest pitchers in the International League this year. You know, hasn't taken the next step in terms of his command yet. It's just been okay, you know, but he has gotten, you know, the workload underneath him. He's pitched more than 100 innings in each of the last two years. They like the progress he's made. They are hoping that he takes a step forward and that come summertime, you know, if they need another guy in the rotation, that he is someone they can call upon. If not, the rest is just kind of so-so. They signed both Colby Allard and Spencer Turnbull to major league contracts this offseason. Both guys in a normal year, I think we're probably looking at minor league deals, both hurt, kind of ineffective in and out of the majors and minors back and forth uh, last season. But the Phillies gave them the guaranteed money. Essentially, Allard's got an option left. Turnbull has an option too, but he's also got five years of service time, so he can refuse it. But I think by giving him $2 million, they might be able to get him to AAA if if that's where he ends up. So that's how they built the depth. Um, they don't have a lot of upper minors depth uh, within the, the farm system, so they kind of had to go out and buy it, which is hard to do right now because every team is looking for guys who will go to AAA and be rotation depth. And it's easier said than done. They made waiver claims. 
uh, Max Castillo, you know, Dylan Covey's a guy who they carried all last year as a long man. Um, they're stretching him out, but he's out of options. So, you know, he's rotation depth, but there's just, there's not a lot here. I mean, they, they are very dependent on rotation health. They had good rotation health last year. Um, they need some guys, you know, step up like Ranger Suarez has never pitched more than 150 ish innings in the regular season. They're looking for him to take a step forward. And Christopher Sanchez is a guy who I think could take a step forward. So um, they need rotation health. I mean, I could say that about every team, but I think this team really needs it. And with respect to Painter, I know that Dombrowski said that we're not going to see him pitch really at all uh, this year, though hopefully maybe he might see some instructs innings. But is there anything about the timeline of their decision to? Try the PRP and then ultimately, you know, realize that they needed the Tommy John that you think they're looking back on and might have changed? Or was there real optimism that the PRP and rest might be enough? There was optimism because the injury to the ligament was in an area that typically heals. And that was there was a debate about this. And and Painter, through his agency, Boris Corporation, you know, sought second and maybe even a third opinion on the injury back in, gosh, I guess it was like last March and April. Yeah. And. The Phillies doctors originally said, look, let's be conservative here. Let's not open it up. And Painter was in line with that. Boris had them go get different opinions because I think, you know, there there was some concern on their end about where the injury was. But I don't know. I mean, like if he would have had the surgery, you know, say mid-April last year, you know, you're still looking at 12 to 18 months and 18 months usually for starting pitchers. It's usually more for starters. You know, you're still maybe he gets into some minor league games here, you know, uh, in August or maybe even July, and, you know, maybe he would have gotten a few innings under his belt this year had he had the surgery earlier. I, I don't know that it would have changed very much. He was going to make the team. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. pretty convinced of that. He was going to make the team. He was going to be their fifth starter. You know, last year, they opened the season with Bailey Falter as their four, and Matt Strom was their fifth starter just out of necessity. Um, had Painter been healthy, I believe he would have broke camp with them as a 19-year-old. And what's crazy is that, you know, by the time he's back fully pitching April 2025, he'll have just turned 22. Uh, and he'll still be one of the youngest pitchers in the majors if he is to pitch in the majors in 2025. He'll be on some kind of innings limit, obviously, next, you know, in 2025. But um, I, I think they're, you know, I don't know if there's, I don't think there's any regrets on their behalf. I know there's not on any, on Painter's behalf. Yeah. He, he believes that this was the right course. Well, Phillies pitchers have become accustomed to big gaps between their ERAs and FIPS because of a lack of defensive support. But as I mentioned, that changed to some extent during last season. We all joke about the team full of DHs, but the Phillies really did address their defensive deficiencies to some extent as the season proceeded. I'm not going to say it became a strength for them, but it wasn't such a glaring, embarrassing weakness, at least. So can you talk a little bit about how that defensive transformation happened and or is still happening? I have a crazy thought. Okay. The Phillies <laughs> might be a decent defensive team this year. Woo. And I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I, when the last time is I could say that in the years I've covered this team, I, they, this is not what this franchise is known for. You know, there, there's, a, you know, there's an obvious one, like right, Kyle Schwarber will not be playing left field every day for them this year. And last year, everybody knew it. I mean, it was not good, but it was out of necessity. I mean, Bryce Harper could only DH, you know, when he returned in May, it was May, June, July, he was just a DH then. Uh, and Schwarber had to play left field and, he had some knee injuries that he refused to talk about and expound on. And, you know, it was clearly not himself out there, but he was never a great defender, even when he had two good knees. So that is a huge one. Just getting him out of 
the outfield and into the DH spot. I expect him to maybe get, you know, maybe like 10, 15 games in left field this year when they need to free up the DH spot if they need to. Uh, but he's a full-time DH now, essentially. Johan Rojas, you know, a lot was made of, you know, his offensive performance in the postseason. It was not good, but Pete might be the best defensive center fielder in baseball. Um, maybe him and Brenton Doyle. You know, I mean, it's, it's probably a toss. I mean, Rojas is an elite defender in center. And by putting him out there, and I do believe that he'll be the guy in center field, you move Brandon Marsh over to left field where he could be one of the better defenders in left field. Bryson Stott was a gold glove finalist his first year at second base. Bryce Harper at first base is, I think, going to be a plus defender there. I mean, we've seen just little bits and pieces of it, but he is athletic enough and smart enough to handle that position. I think they're getting an upgrade over there at first base defensively. And so all of a sudden you look around the field and you're like, okay, I mean, you know, right field, not good. Third base, not good. Shortstop, Trey Turner had probably his worst defensive year he's ever had last year. I think there were a lot of circumstances that, I mean, obviously he was not himself at the plate for most of the year. There was a lot going on. I I, I don't think he's going to lead the league in errors again at shortstop. And I know it's not the best way to measure it, but Romuto had some, you know, a little decline in framing stuff here and there. I, I don't know how much of that is just a one-year blip or not. He catches a staff that throws high velocity, et cetera. I, I think that this is a team that is, in the aggregate, way, way better defensively. And they allowed the fourth fewest runs in a National League last year. And we just saw changes, you know, just when Rojas was out there late in the year, just the, the, just the changes that you could see. They were huge, and you put that over six months, it could be a, a significant thing. Because we've been talking, like, look, the roster is mostly the same. So you're like, okay, well, well, you're looking for reasons. Why is this going to be, why are they going to be able to do this again? And and I think the upgrade on defense is a, is a really big underlying reason as to why this team can be successful. Yeah, I've, I've joked with Ben that I've been center field defense pilled over the last, like, <laughs> six months. And I actually think that Rojas is a big part of why, um, just the difference. He's tremendous out there. I yeah, mean, he's, he's incredible out there. Yeah. I wanted to ask about Harper and sort of his defensive progression at first base because last year, like, it wasn't it wasn't bad, but it also wasn't s- spectacular, and it did feel like he wasn't maybe attempting some of the the regular plays that a first baseman would would make. So, can you can you talk about sort of how that progression has proceeded for him? What help he's gotten in sort of getting his his legs under him at first? A lot of it is just this positioning stuff the nuances of the position that they really, you know, they, they did in drills and they could practice it, but there are so many situational things that he just wasn't able to be exposed to before he got on the field. And, you know, they really felt a need to get him there as, as medically quick as they could whenever he was cleared, just because of how bad Schwarber was in left field. I, I think just having the experience that he had, no doubt he's going to still make some mistakes because of the inexperience of that position. Uh, but I think he, genuinely has enjoyed the challenge of learning a new position at this point in his career. I think he really enjoys being on the dirt. I think he feels more involved in the game. Bobby Dickerson, the veteran infield coach for the Phillies, and him have a really strong relationship, and I think that has helped this process come along. And look, like he is a, a remarkable athlete. So the reactionary type plays, you know, those diving plays, you know, the plays where he starts a double play and makes a nice sort of second, like they expect him to to handle those well because he is a tremendous athlete. I think it's all the positioning stuff and knowing where to be as the cutoff man. And he was like, you know, making sure a guy touches first base as he's, you know, on a ball in the gap. Like the, the smallest stuff that we don't even think about. And, you know, yes, the Ron Washington memes, I, you know, I understand all, all that, like, you know, first base, you know, how hard is it? Well, you know, it is hard. There are some nuances to it. 
Um, it is lower on the defensive spectrum, of course. I think he can be really good over there. I think he really wants to be good over there. And I think this challenge for him, I think he's, I think he's just enjoyed this like mid career challenge of doing something new and being great at it. We talked about Harper's positional future. We didn't bring up, though, the noises he made over the offseason about wanting to be a Philly for life, which made me do a double take because I thought he basically already was. But it seemed like maybe he wanted to renegotiate or get extra years tacked onto his contract, which made me think of your reporting that the Phillies had initially discussed offering him a 20-year contract, yes. right? Yes, Just, that's right. Yeah. Uh, idle talk, maybe, and perhaps would have been struck down, but maybe that's what he would have wanted. So do you think that's going to lead to anything? any revisiting of his contract situation or was that just hot air? I don't think it's hot air. I think the way the Phillies look at it, they don't have any incentive to do anything. Harper does not have an opt out in his contract. That was something that he insisted on in those negotiations because he was tired of, you know, here answering all these questions about where's he going to go? Where's he going to go? Where's he going to go when he was with Washington? And he's like, I want to commit to somewhere and I don't want to ever have to answer these questions again. Well, all of a sudden, you know, he's talking about reopening it. And I don't think it, if it was as easy as tacking on two or three years to the deal, I think it would be done. You know, he he's talked about how he wants to play into his 40s. Right now, he's signed through his age 38 season. So tack two years on at the same salary and call it a day. I don't think that's necessarily what Scott Boris wants. I think Scott Boris would like to reopen the whole contract. And frankly, on the Phillies side, I, I don't see any incentive to do that. It would be rather unprecedented. Honestly, um, because he has eight years, I think, remaining in the deal. So I don't know if it's going to lead to anything. I don't think it's like causing any kind of issues in the clubhouse or I don't think Bryce is, you know, has issues with how the Phillies have treated him. I don't I think don't I don't think that's the case at all. I think some of this might be a little envy team Boris that, you know, Manny Machado had an opt out clause. Remember, it was the great Harper Machado offseason there where they were both free agents. Machado used that opt out to get more money and renegotiate. Harper's AAV, you know, 25 and change is now, you know, pretty far, not pretty far down, but it's down the list now of highest AAVs. But his 330 million guarantee is still in the top 10, I believe, of largest contracts ever signed. So there might be some disagreements about, you know, whether he's paid enough. I don't know what it's going to lead to. But yes, Ben, basically, he is a Philly for life. I mean, I think that's how the Phillies see it. And, I, you know, maybe they find a way to extend it. I just don't see them reopen. You know, they don't have any incentive to reopen this thing completely. It's very generous of you to put his contract in terms of how old he will be when it ends and not how old <laughs> we will be when it ends. I don't want to think about that. Yeah, it's a good way to derail your day. Tell us a little bit about the Trey Turner redemption arc last season, mm-hmm. how he turned his season around, just finished with some blistering batting and heroics and obviously was embraced by the fans. And I guess a larger question, the Phillies fan base seems to have tried to change its reputation. I don't know if that's <laughs> exactly the motivation or, or whether this is more of a responding to individual players initiative, but they've been quite supportive and quite friendly and uh, players have credited them for buoying their spirits in the past couple seasons in a few different incidents. So is there a a vibe shift with Philly's fandom going on, or at least an attempt to show that there has been? All those years that they were bad, like I would tell guys, you know, because the the crowds were bad and, you know, the atmosphere was not good and and guys didn't understand it because they kept hearing about what it was like to play in Philadelphia and and all this stuff about the glory years in the late 2000s and early 2010s. And 
Philadelphia is a great place to play when when you win. And we've seen that the last two postseasons. I mean, the, the atmosphere has been unbelievable. Uh, and it, mm-hmm. it is a, it is an advantage. It is a real home field advantage. Of course, they lost game six and seven in the LCS. So, you know, the Diamondbacks would debate that now. As far as Turner goes and the ovation, I, I think people just connected with a, with a, with him on a human level. Like they saw a guy who very clearly is one of the most talented players in this game having and being open and having a difficult season, a difficult transition, you know, just feeling like he had to live up to a $300 million contract. And I thought the ovation was really cool. Um, I certainly think it helped him relax. I don't know if it fixed him, but I think it helped him relax. And he stopped swinging at bad pitches. <laughs> and like he, you know, he would say like, you know, there were some adjustments made, of course. Um, but simply like, I, I think he just stopped trying to swing at every pitch. And honestly, like this is something we saw him fall into in the LCS. I mean, he finished that series. I think it was like, I don't know, over his last 15, maybe in that series, you know, early in that series, uh, he was, you know, making good contact. He was getting some big hits for them. Like the whole team was essentially. I think he hit a home running game two, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah, home running game two. But then really when it went back into bad habits in games three, four, five, six, and seven. And um, so, you know, there was there was a lot of bad last year for Trey Turner. There was plenty of good. I mean, you look up and you know, he basically didn't hit for the first four months of the season and still finished with, I don't know, 111 OPS plus. They are hoping it's a lot better this year. Uh, you know, I think they love him at number two in the lineup. You know, he had a 320 on base last year. It's got to be better. And, you know, I think they're expecting him just to be more comfortable with his surroundings, not feel like there's a lot of pressure to live up to the contract and to just be Trey Turner. But, I mean, from August through September, you know, I mean, he was uh, on a tear. And yeah. that is the guy that, I mean, he really, he saved his season, like his whole season line with two extraordinary months. You can't expect him to do that for a full season, but just having it spread out a little better over the course of the season should make them better. Yeah. And by the way, not only have the Phillies been successful, but they've just been a fun team. Right? It's just like a fun group of guys. I mean, the whole like himbo narrative that everyone <laughs> got into last postseason, right? Just kind of the the chaos of the roster construction of this team. Even as a non-Phillies fan, just as a neutral supporter, I've enjoyed just following this team over the past couple of years. They're a fun group. I mean, I've covered this team now for 14 years, and I, I think it's Definitely the most close-knit clubhouse I think I've, I've been around. And, and uh, you know, I think it's cool that people – yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, the city fell in love with baseball again. I mean, think about it. It was a decade without postseason baseball. And, you know, really the Phillies had become irrelevant in the city. They'd been known for these, you know, September collapses uh, in the in the Gabe Kapler and Joe Girardi years. Uh, and they just – you know, er- everything changed in, in the 2022 uh, postseason. And, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of disappointment about how last year ended. But – I mean, they they came within two two wins of the World Series in 2022, and uh, five wins of the World Series in 2023, and it's it's kind of remarkable how they've turned things around just like that. Nick Castellanos's season at the plate last year was definitely more successful than his 2022, which looked like it might be you know on the on ramp to a, a pretty bad uh, contract assessment eventually, but. I I wonder first what you attribute sort of that mini bounce back he had to, and then if there is from from your perspective sort of further room for improvement here because um, he's not a gold glover out there, um, <laughs> despite the the great plays that we've kind of become accustomed to from him in the postseason. So he really needs the bat to carry the profile. So what do you what do you kind of expect from him this year? No idea. <laughs> I mean, he's just like <laughs> he just ah, like. 
yes, first half last year, I mean, it was just, he was making better swing decisions. He was just yeah. swinging at fewer sliders down and away, and he was getting the pitcher in the zone, and he was making harder contact. He was an all-star because of that. And then July just fell off a cliff. And then he came back in August, September, and it was great. And then the NLDS against the Braves, he was the best hitter on the planet. I mean, I, his series, that series was unbelievable. The, the, the Spencer Strider game, it's two home runs off a of Strider, um, takes 100 uh, deep against Spencer Strider. He had, he was seven for 15 in that series with two walks and one strikeout. I mean, he was spitting on pitches that he was would swing at all season. And then you get to the NLCS and he goes one for 24 with 11 strikeouts and two walks and just looks completely lost. So I have no idea. I think, uh, I, I think he is somebody who could age better. You know, I think he has more wisdom than he had before. I think he knows how to better take care of his body. I think he he could do anything. I would not be surprised by any line from Nick Castellanos <laughs> this year. Last year was the first season in quite a while that, at least by the advanced metrics, JT Realmuto graded out as a negative defender, particularly from a framing perspective, which... I don't know what to make of that. Like when I watched Real Muto last year, it didn't seem like there was an obvious change in his framing technique to me. Is that something that he has talked about as a concern? Do you think that's just a one-year blip? What do you what do you make of Real Muto's season, both I guess behind the plate and at it, because he also had kind of a down year with the bat? I think there are some spots framing-wise that he thinks he can improve on certain pitches. I think down and away he against righties, he didn't grade well. And I know that they've talked about internally just about doing a few different drills just to have him be a little more aggressive in receiving the pitch like he used to because he was in the past graded as one of the best framers uh, among all catchers. And so there there are also extenuating circumstances here. He did catch one of the hardest throwing staffs uh, in baseball and particularly yeah. a lot of the relievers, I wouldn't say are scattershot, but there's not plus plus command coming from guys who are throwing in the high 90s all the time. And I do think that that uh, makes framing a lot harder. And I do think that that's something they have factored in. They believe that that is actually a thing. The Phillies were also the and they have the numbers on this and I I, I want to get them if they let me get them. But the Phillies were the slowest team to the plate as a pitching staff in baseball last year. And so some of the stolen base numbers, the caught stealings are, are frankly, they're just not on him. I mean, they have a you know really slow pitching staff and Aaron Nola did fix some things late in the year, but Real Muto didn't have a chance on some of those stolen bases. So I think defensively, there are some things he can clean up. And as for the swing, I wrote a piece of The Athletic about it. Like he, he has made some swing changes. He actually went into their biomechanics lab you know, early in the offseason, not too long after the NLCS ended, teams were just pounding him in, uh, and he could not he could not handle the inside pitch in her third and in. Um, he was just destroyed on last year, uh, and there were definitely some some holes there that he can close, and he thinks he's closed them. I don't think this is a physical thing, and, and, and people are going to roll their eyes at that because you know we're talking about a guy who uh, turns thirty three in March. Catchers do not age well. We know that. This guy, though, like they do a lot of different testing on him and like he still is like a physical freak. And that was one of the things we said about Real Muto earlier in his career. It's like maybe this is, you know, one of the rare guys who can age better at catcher because of just his athleticism and the way he's built. He's always faster than most catchers. Just we'll see. I mean, you know, he he had his worst offensive season since 
his rookie year, really. I mean, if you want to look at it, a 310 on base, just high, highest strikeout rate of his career. He thinks he's fixed some things. But, yeah, I mean, he's in a race against time. You know, so, I mean, he's he's got a lot to prove, I think. Dombrowski was a player development guy as a younger executive, but in recent years, the rap on him has been you bring him in to go for it and he slashes and burns your farm system and he trades all your prospects and he hands out big contracts and then he moves on or he has moved on and he leaves a smoking ruin behind him. (laughs) But the flag is flying over it, so maybe it's worthwhile, at least in Boston. Anyway, I wonder whether that is happening in Philadelphia because he's kind of there for the long haul, right? He's been there for a while already. He signed an extension. He's not going anywhere anytime soon, and they're still successful. So how is he doing at juggling those dual and sometimes kind of conflicting responsibilities of building for now, contending, and also building for the future? He addressed his deficiency at building a bullpen. Is he doing the same at constructing a farm system? He has shown far more restraint than I thought he would. And that's not that's not to say that I don't think he has a good balance of things, but at this stage in your career of his career, you're right, Ben. I mean, like, you know, he's trying to win one more World Series. Um, you know, he's obviously closer to the end of his career than he is to the beginning. So the best prospect they've traded since Dombrowski took over was uh, Logan O'Hoppy, the catcher, and they traded him for Brandon Marsh, uh, mm-hmm. a younger, you know, player who's essentially been an everyday guy for them on two you know, postseason clubs. And that was why they did that trade. They said, look, you know, Logan O'Hoppy, we really like him, but he's blocked by JT Realmuto for the, you know, foreseeable future. Why don't we get a younger player who better fits our roster? And beyond that, they have not traded any top prospects. Uh, I mean, in fact, they, they've showed more restraint, I think, than I expected. I mean, this is going to be the first year that they have their full allotment of draft picks. Now, they've been active there. I mean, they've signed quite a few free agents who had qualifying offers attached to them in the last few off-seasons, and they have sacrificed at least one and sometimes two draft picks in every draft. And I do think that, is, that has definitely hurt their their farm system. They will have their full allotment of draft picks this year, and I, and I do think that that was something that was not necessarily dictating what they were doing in the off-season, but it was definitely in their minds with regards to some free agents. So uh, the farm system is still not it's not great. You know, I think it's in. I would I say it's consensus bottom third in baseball. Uh, it's definitely concentrated in you know low you know in A ball position players now. I would say. I mean, you know, and the two best prospects are Painter and Abel, two pitchers. Painter obviously again will not pitch in 2024, so the shine is a little less there. But I do think they're actually trying to build something, legitimately build something. And and the way they're looking at it is like by the time we need internal help, the next wave. You know, Real Muto is a free agent in two years. Schwarber's a free agent in two years. Castellanos is a free agent in three years. Bone will be a free agent in three years. That kind of like next wave of when they'll need some guys to come up from the system, I think that's what they're building toward right now. Um, their upper levels are not great. Um, they're not going to get a ton of help from the upper levels in the immediate. Uh, but I can see what they're trying to do and kind of thread that needle in terms of like looking two or three years down the line. And so far, Dombrowski has stuck to that plan. So we've talked about this roster being pretty complete. We talked about how, apart from bringing Nola back there, offseason has been relatively quiet. This is obviously a good group, a group that was almost in the World Series again last year. And we project them to be 13 wins worse than the Atlanta Braves, at least uh, as things stand today. So, you know, as they think about their position in the NL East Where do they see themselves compared to Atlanta? And if they were to try to sort of push in, where might they try to make some additions or modifications to the roster to compete with the Braves? 
I, I think that's the big question, Megan, and that's why they're going to let this play out for the first three months. You know, because it might end up being that they want to go get a center fielder. You know, maybe Rojas doesn't hit enough to justify, you know, the, the elite defense. Maybe they need another starting pitcher. I mean, Dombrowski now in each of the last three trade deadlines has traded for uh, a back-end starter. Kyle Gibson, uh, Noah Syndergaard, Michael Lorenzen. Maybe they decide they need a late-inning reliever, uh, a closer type. You know, I think that they're, they want to see this group play out for the first few months. And if they need to go get something... You know, maybe that's when we see them start to spend some of that prospect capital that uh, they haven't really spent a lot of. Are they 13 games worse than the Braves? I don't know. I, I don't think so, but I think the Braves are very clearly better on paper. Like, they are a better roster. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The key for the Phillies here is it's going to be like, like, just don't dig yourself a hole like you've dug the last two years. I mean, yeah. they have been out of the divisional race by June 1st in each of the last two years. Two years ago, it prompted a managerial change. So I think the ingredients are there for a better start. Their schedule is far more favorable this year in terms of opponents and travel in the first two months of the season. They lost a lot of guys at WBC last year, and that's an, that's an easy excuse. I do think it I do think it affected them, especially with the rule changes early on. Um, their pitching staff was not was really not as prepared as it should have been. I think they've made some changes there. So they, they need to stay in the race. Like, like they have not been in the divisional race for years now. I mean, more, you know, it's been a long time. So I think a, a better start will be key to this. And as long as they stay within striking distance of the Braves come July, I think they can reassess and go get whatever it is they need. Well, maybe you've more or less answered our traditional closing question, which is what would constitute a successful season, I guess, <laughs> when you've been to the World what Series. What did I say or... last year? I think I said, <laughs> I didn't I say, I said like hosting the NLCS. And I've been thinking well. about this because I remember you, asked, you guys asked me and they hosted the NLCS. All right. You nailed it. I guess if you have either been to the World Series or been on the precipice of the World Series in consecutive seasons, then winning a World Series is a kind of a goal, even though it's hard to hold anyone to that standard but stay in the division race and make another deep playoff run is there anything else that could be added to that i think what con yeah what constitutes a successful season for me at the very least like i think is is winning the division winning winning the east now will people be satisfied with that if they only win the east probably not but yeah win the division and make a deep run i can't say like win the national league because that, that that's just only one team does that, and uh, I don't know. I remember struggling with this last year, and I was dreading yeah. this today. So um, <laughs> I'll say win the division and make a deep run. I think that, Ben, you put it really well. All right. Well, at least we're not going to force you to make a win total prediction, so you don't have to dread that anymore. <laughs> so you can follow the Phillies' run to the top of the NL East and <laughs> the World Series uh, that Matt Gelb just guaranteed they would win. That didn't happen. Don't hold him to that. Please don't tweet at him and say that he said that. I said that. Putting words in his mouth. And you can follow wherever they go, however they do it, at The Athletic all season long. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk to Sam Blum, also of The Athletic, about Brandon Marsh's old team and Logan O'Happy's current team, the Angels. It's effectively wild and it's wildly effective at putting baseball in perfect perspective. Impressive, smart, and impeccably styled. It's the wildly effective, effectively wild. Spin rate along Shango. Better than war. You might hear something you never heard before. All right. It is time to preview the Shohei Otani-less 
Los Angeles Angels. And to do that, we are joined now by Sam Blum, who covers the Angels and also some other teams sometimes for The Athletic and is coming to us from the ballpark. So if you hear a little bit of burble in the background, that's why it's tough to schedule this preview series when we're talking to people who are covering games at spring training. But Sam, thanks for finding a time to talk to us and a place. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And thanks, Meg. Uh, the burble sometimes is for me, too. So, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it happens to all of it. <laughs> so are you relieved or disappointed not to be on the Shohei Otani wedding beat? <laughs> oh, man, that was interesting news to wake up to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, I'm, you know, that's not my problem anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm impressed by Shohei's ability to do like the hard launch. You know, we did with a dog during right. the uh, um, yeah the MVP announcement, and then like middle of the night. I guess you know the the, the announcement was in Japanese, and and that's a middle of the day yeah. announcement in Japan. So I'm, I'm sure that was you know purposeful in that sense. But it's just you know he's a, he's a fascinating guy. He's very private, but then every once in a while he gives you a nugget, and it's really exciting. And you know, even if I'm not on that beat anymore, I'm still following along. I guess there's no one on the current Angels roster who would generate quite the same excitement by announcing that they had gotten married. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You've actually been covering some other teams, and I, I don't want to give the Angels short shrift here, but you had a kind of buzzy Chris Bryant article that came out the day we're talking to you, and I just wanted to ask you one question about that before we get into the Angels. There was a quote in here from Bryant where he seemed to express some reservations, possibly some regret about either signing with the Rockies or the way he signed with the Rockies. Now, they may very well have their own regrets about signing yeah. Chris Bryant. I don't know. People at the time questioned the fit for those two. But when he said he started discussions with the Rockies before the lockout started, that was late in December 2021. And then you write, when it ended three months later, everyone was reporting to camp, but not him. And because of that, he felt the need to make a decision. Then you quote Bryant, it's like, oh, shoot, I need to get there. There were other teams interested, but I didn't want to wait around. It was a completely different situation for a lot of free agents at the time. I guess I didn't do as much research into the prospects as I could. Chris, talk to us. We'll tell you about the Rockies' competitive situation in the long term. We talk about that a lot. But but that stood out to me just because of all the recent conversation about signing deadlines and owners and teams and even some others and Rob Manfred advocating for a signing deadline and the Players Association pushing back mm -hmm. on that, understandably. There was sort of an artificial signing deadline that year because of the lockout. And then when the lockout ended, if you didn't sign before the lockout went into effect, there was pressure to sign before spring training. And so I, I wonder if that dynamic is indicative of what would happen or what would happen more often in a signing deadline scenario where everyone did have to sign by a certain date in the offseason and whether players would then feel more pressure and perhaps feel like they were rushed into a decision. Is this an indication of one reason why Tony Clark and the Players Association might want to push back against that idea? Or do you see this as sort of a singular Chris Bryant Rockies related situation? I think there's a lot of parts of this story that are singular to to Chris Bryant. And then also the lockout year being creating situations where players probably did feel a lot of pressure just to get into camp. It was already a short camp and the lockout ends and players are reporting like within the next you know, 24, 48 hours. So I think there's some singular, unique situations that relates to Chris Bryant. But I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think that that's, a, that's an interesting, you know, I hadn't really thought about it like that, to be honest with you, um, that it could be a, kind of a, maybe a harbinger of way that this could go or this could go wrong. Yeah. 
So yeah, it's an interesting conversation to have. But with Chris, like, it's a weird fit. Mm-hmm. I think everybody is would thought about it at the time, and I, I also just didn't. I mean, t- I talked to Bill Schmidt, the, the Rockies GM, about it. There really wasn't a coherent like reason for why they wanted to sign him, especially like a year after they paid all that money to send uh, Nolan Arenado to the um, the Cardinals. And so it's, it's just like the story was kind of like, well, what's going on here? Like, what is why is he? What does he think about all this? And what does everyone think about all this? And and two years later, it, it makes even less sense than it did two years ago. So <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It could be a good. It could, I hadn't thought about it like that. It's an interesting question. The Rockies not having a coherent plan. I cannot believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this valuable reporting that you've brought yes. this to life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is what happens when I venture off the Angels beat. I'm like, huh, some other teams are also a little odd. <laughs> yeah, breaking news here. Right? It's not only the Angels. Well, we will have a Rockies preview to come. So apologies to Angels fans for hijacking part of this preview to ask about Chris Bryant. And also apologies to Angels fans for talking about their ex. Not only has Otani found love in his personal life, but he has also found a new team. And maybe some Angels fans are feeling jilted, but also probably understanding. I just wanted to ask about the parting of ways there. There was some reporting that suggested that the Angels had an opportunity to match the Dodgers' final offer as the Giants claimed that they did and that Artie Moreno wasn't willing to go all the way to do that. Do you think that's accurate? It is accurate, okay. 100% accurate. Okay. Yeah, that's. Can you explain why you think that was? And realistically, do you think it would have made any difference given the different competitive situations of these two teams? I, I think it could have. I mean, it's 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 only Shohei that would know the answer to that question 100%. But I mean, if you're going to go back to the Angels, I mean, there's only two reasons to go back to the Angels after the Dodgers make their offer. And, you know, one is that he's interested in returning and the other is that he inter- he's interested in raising the price. I don't know what the answer is, but I think that the, the Angels made a, a lot of mistakes in not trading him if they weren't going to be willing to to do a deal like the one that was you know put on the table here. They had opportunities to to really build their franchise and put their put themselves in a chance to be a competitive team this year, the year after, and the year after that if they had made some deals, if they had made a tough choice. But instead of making a tough choice, they just decided to let it ride with Otani and then not re-sign him basically. Because I look at that as a choice. It's, it's and they didn't get out bid here necessarily. I mean, this was a reasonable deal. I don't think Artie Moreno wanted to do deferred payments. And at the end of the day, that's... You think it was more the structure than the the total amount? Or do you have any idea what the, the gap was that he balked at? I can't get inside Artie's head. And you know, he's done an interview this spring and wouldn't let me talk to him. So I, you know, it's not like I have been able to really discuss this with him. But I, uh, I believe that it's probably a combination of things. I mean, it was a high price to begin with. But then you add on the fact that this was going to be deferred payments that I just don't think he was interested in doing a deal structure like that. So, yeah, it's uh, it just I think a lot of mistakes were made here on the Angels front. And, and to answer your question, I think there's a chance they could have re-signed Otani if they had come and matched that offer or exceeded the offer. Uh, I'm not saying that for certain, but, you know, clearly there was there was some sort of interest in re-engaging that, that type of negotiation and the Angels did not reciprocate. Maybe we can shift our attention to a guy who is still a member of the Los Angeles Angels and <laughs> yes. seems like he maybe wants to be forever. I want to talk about Mike Trout. There's been a great deal of consternation this offseason about whether the Angels should trade him, whether he should want to be traded. He obviously has a full no trade and gets to have say there. But I'm curious to start first what you 
think the sort of sincerity of that sentiment is on his part, how we account for it, given, um, you know, the potential sort of competitive aspirations of the team this year. And then perhaps most importantly for Angels fans, what you sort of expect from him from a production perspective in 2024, because as much as it pains effectively wild, which for a long time was um, looking to him as sort of the patron state of the podcast. I think the days of Mike Trout as the best player in baseball are firmly behind him now. So what is the 2024 version of Mike Trout? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is sincere. I mean, this guy's put his whole career into this organization. I mean, they drafted him. He's he came up here. He's and he's a very loyal person. I think if you look look across, you know, all aspects of his life, he's just a loyal guy with his friends, his family. I mean, this is that's not to gas him up. It's just the way he is. And he even talked about that. And and I think he's put so much into this that as much as he might be frustrated, and I think he has to be pretty frustrated to say the things that he said when he came in, which was, you know, tep it sounds tepid to us, but I think for him, I mean that's a significant comment to say that one, that he could potentially at some point in the future be open to a trade, but also that, you know, he's really pushing the organization to sign guys, which is not something he does. You know, as, as common sense as it sounds for him to do as someone with the platform and, you know, the credibility that he's built up among fans and among the organization, he rarely makes those types of grand, you know, grand gestures to to ask ownership or to push ownership to do anything. And clearly it hasn't worked, at least not yet. But I, I believe that it's sincere that he wants to stay. But I also believe that it's sincere that he's frustrated. You know, that's that's my read on this. It's just it's not gone the way that that he hoped it would. And, and yeah. you know, beyond beyond losing Otani, I mean, they just haven't really done much this offseason. Their their biggest signing was Robert Stevenson. It's a good pickup, but it's not going to you know replace a nine win player. And yeah, and uh, you're right. I agree with you that I think his days potentially. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to count you know bet against him, but I mean, some of the numbers on his his ability to like hit the fastball consistently, definitely dipped. And, and, you know, he's not staying on the field. He's not been healthy. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're not doing those things, if you don't look like yourself in the box and you're not staying on the field, then there are better players out there right now. Might still be one of the greatest of all time. I would not take that away from him. And yeah. I wouldn't take away his ability to to figure this out. But it's it's right now, it's not, it's not there. Yeah, it used to be that he would come into spring every year with some sort of goal. He would identify some relative weakness and then he would target that. And inevitably, he would turn it into a strength or at least shore it up. And maybe now it's just been health staying on the field mostly. But has he talked about anything else that he wants to work on in his game? And do you think there's any possibility that we will see him in an outfield corner at some point? Of course, it's been a couple of years since that whole kerfuffle about uh, Madden saying that he might not play center. And then, of course, uh, quickly walking that back after talking to Trout. And I will say that over the past couple of seasons, when he's been healthy, Trout has been fairly effective in center, at least according to StatCast. He's in the mid-80s in percentile rank and outs above average. But you wonder, not just from a performance standpoint, but also from a health wear and tear standpoint when that becomes a conversation again. Yeah, you know, I, I think he's pretty adamant about staying in center field, which is going to be interesting, uh, you know, as that plays out over maybe not even just this year, but the year after. He's got... You know, he's going to he signed through like 2030. So this is, you know, going to be a conversation, whether that's in the next couple months or the next couple years. Uh, and he also talked this spring about not wanting to be a DH as much, even though I think everybody kind of looks at this situation the Angels are in and thinks, man, it would make a lot of sense for him to be DHing a little bit more, if not a lot more, really. I mean, you want to keep him on the field. You got to keep his bat in the lineup. I mean, he's a good center fielder, but they've, you know, Mickey Moniak could go and play center field. They've got guys that can do that. They're really, you know, Joe Adele. 
even like Taylor Ward, like they, they've got guys that could play that position, I think, fairly effectively. So it's not like it's necessary for him, even if, like you mentioned, he's actually probably gotten better at the position in the last couple of seasons. Um, but it's about wear and tear and it's about staying healthy. And anything you can do to keep him on the field at this point, I think, is, is only going to help the team, whether or not he's keen on the idea of, you know, not necessarily playing the outfield or even not necessarily playing center field. He always kind of like, you, you know, you ask him about like, uh, little weaknesses and in, in like you know what he's kind of doing to get his timing and he always kind of has a, a different mechanical thing that is working on it's i don't know tough to tough to pinpoint with him i've i haven't heard him necessarily articulate a specific area he's trying to work on but if you like you said if you look at if you look at the numbers the ability to catch up to the fastballs become an issue you know I'm, I'm sure that's timing i'm sure that's you know when he gets his foot down stuff like that he's talked about that in the past and that's been a problem so far at least the last two years i would say you mentioned Moniak, and I'm curious sort of what version of him you expect us to see this season. Because, you know, in a, in a year where I think Angels fans were still looking for like bright spots apart from Otani, here was Moniak, who had been this failed prospect, not really li- lived up to his potential, and then came out sort of, you know, on fire in his early time with the Angels. And then, you know, things sort of worsened for him as the season progressed. So what adjustments did he make when he initially came up and has he talked about sort of how he might regain the form that he showed in May and June? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the some of the numbers that have been really impressive from my perspective is, is one, he actually started hitting, getting some hits off of lefties. So he's, you know, it, it allows them to play him more uh, and, you know, face lefties. None of them necessarily going to do that every time, but I think that, you know, especially with the lineup looking the way maybe it, it is this year, you, you're going to need him to play more. The big thing with him was at the end of last season, he really started to just chase a lot more. And that that's always been the issue, especially on like breaking pitches, just the ability to make contact and the yeah. ability to lay off pitches. And so I think the big question for him is, which version are we going to get? Is it going to be the guy that, you know, just was hitting home run after home run and really locked in for the first like three or four months of last year? Or the guy the last two months that looked like the old Mickey Moniak that was really not very playable in major league games? I think he was also dealing with some injuries in the end of last year. He's really toughing out, I believe, a foot injury. And it's maybe worth taking some of his numbers in the end of last season with a grain of salt because of it. But yeah, the, the, just the ability to lay off breaking pitches that are out of the zone, I think, is the difference for him to be a you know a good hitter or a bad one, a really bad one or a really good one in a lot of ways, too. Yeah, we talked about him multiple times during the season, at first just marveling about how good he'd been and then questioning whether it could continue with those swing yeah. decisions. And and he kept it going longer than I expected him to, frankly. And then... Fair, yeah. Honestly, me too at times. Yeah. I mean, it just was consistently good for quite a while, then just completely right. fell off a cliff. Yeah, stopped being able to defy gravity yeah. at some point. What about the rest of the outfield situation? You still have Ward in the mix, of course, and I suppose you always have Schrodinger's Joe Adele, who is uh, <laughs> still technically yeah. in the mix somehow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Ward's an everyday guy at this point. And the big concern with him was, well, what is it going to be like facing live pitching again? Because as you know, he got hit in the face with an yeah. Alec Manoa fastball in July and that ended his season. It really was an ugly injury just all around. And, uh, you know, you feel for him. And you always are curious, how does a guy get back in the box after that? Especially someone like Taylor Ward, who's very, you know, his his skill set is, is really rooted in just, I don't know, he's, he's very zen there. And I, if you've talked to him about it, like he's very thoughtful and methodical about just his approach there. And so if, you, if, you're, if you're going in there and you're ducking out of the way of pitches that are, you know, inside, 
as sometimes could be the case when this type of injury happens, you know, you're not going to be in a good spot. So he's looked good so far in spring. I think they're planning on having him be an everyday guy. Uh, the Joe Adele situation is fascinating to me. I mean, he's going to be on a big league roster, I think, regardless. Really, the Angels are either going to trade him or they're just going to keep him on their team. There's no real reason to you know, send him through waivers, and he's got no options left this year. So I, I expect him. I mean, they don't really have backup infielders at this point, so they may as well just like carry a fifth outfielder. And I think that's probably where things stand right this very moment. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that can change in the next month. They could trade him. They could, you know, add infielders and, and really make that a competition for Adele. Right now, I think he's going to be on the team. And, you know, they, they're getting him in pretty much every spring training game, whether that's the first half of the game or the second. I mean, they're just going to see what they got and, um, you know, hope hope that somehow he puts together his potential. I mean, it's, and I, you know, I always, I, I kind of get jaded with the Joe Adele talk because, you know, every time you ask the coach about him, they're like, oh, he's improving here, here, here. And then he still strikes out 40% of the time. So I'll see it, you know, when it, when it happens. Uh, it'll happen. If it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. So it's, you know, he's in good shape. He looks like he could be improved, at least defensively. And it's just a matter of him putting it together in major league games. Doesn't matter if he performs anywhere else. Nolan Shanwell was drafted on July 9th last year, and he made his big league debut on August 18th, which is not a very long time at all. Um, <laughs> some, <laughs> and this is this has become, you know, we I want to talk about Shanwell as a player, but this has also become something of a, a developmental trend with the Angels, where they just haven't been reluctant to bring guys up, you know, and that's fine, but this was a very short time. So first, what was motivating the promotion at the time, and where do you see Shanwell's development going from here because he held his own pretty respectably for a guy who had only been drafted really a month prior. There are some questions that our prospect team has about whether he currently exhibits big league physicality. So where is Nolan Shanwell uh, in his development as a pro and what do you expect from him this year? And if I could piggyback on that, speaking of his physicality, if anyone has not read Sam's article about his off-season training regimen, not <laughs> Sam's, but Nolan's, please do explain how he attempted to, yeah. to improve oh, yeah, yeah. his physique. And I guess we know that wherever he is right now, he is probably standing, not sitting. Probably, yeah. Well, to answer your first question, like what's the motivation between behind like these call-ups? It, and this is no insult to any of the players that they've called up, but it is desperation. It, and it certainly was last year. They were in a position where they really felt like they needed to win. And <laughs> this was who was available to them. I mean, they, you know, you had Jared Walsh, who was just a, pretty much a shell of the player that he had been last year. And, you know, beyond that, they just were like, we need, you know, it was, was kind of getting to that point in August where uh, it was either going to happen or it wasn't. And it was really like that week and they, they needed someone and they called him up. And this is what, you know, it's the same thing with, with Zach Neto. I mean, these guys, I think, in a vacuum, maybe, yeah, maybe some of them are ready. You don't know that they are until, they, until they're actually, you know, appear in a game. I think right. there's probably some luck involved in, in you know, these call-ups actually working because it's just, to me, it seems like just not very prudent and it could really reverse maybe some of the uh, development process in a lot of ways. But it hasn't been the case with the Angels players that they've called up. And I think that there's some confidence behind, you know, the decisions because they know who the guys are and they know their makeup. But yeah, I mean, when you talk about Shanowell, I mean, he's, he's got elite bats of ball. And I was talking with Wash about this yesterday, Ron Washington about this yesterday. I mean, can you mix really elite back to ball and have a lot of power, which he doesn't have yet and kind of keep both and not like lose, lose one or the other. And I'm not sure I really got a, uh, like a clear concrete answer on it. I think that 
this is like going to be a developmental year for Shannon Wilbaugh at the same time. I mean, they're gonna, they're planning to bat him second in the lineup and really, you know, be the guy that gets on base. I mean, he's gotten on base in all 29 major league games he's played in. So there's, I think that, you know, it's worth putting him on the team and seeing what he can do. But the expectations should always be tempered with someone who's got such limited experience. He just turned 22, like last week. It's uh, it's it's unique to have someone called up and, and be, you know, relied on in this way. Like you said, a year ago today, he was probably playing in some midweek FAE game against <laughs> like, you know, whoever, like Georgia Southern. I don't know. You know, it's just, it's, this is a different environment, different animals. This is his first spring training. And yes, um, uh, on his, uh, his weird workouts, he, he, uh, <laughs> he's been two days a week completely just like he wouldn't sit down. He would wake up and he would stand up until the day ended, which it sounds like something. Oh, like I was just standing, right? Like, I think it's one of those exercises where you don't realize how painful it is until you're probably yeah. doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's what he would say. He said like the first day he did it, he was in like crippling pain by 1 p.m. So, um, you know, the whole purpose of that is to just, you know, be able to stay on his feet. I think he started feeling fatigued during back-to-back games in particular last year. And I'm not sure if it's a smart workout or not, but I think it just, the story, the purpose of that story was to show, man, this guy's like kind of crazy and he's just like, very motivated, but but also almost like maniacal in the way he operates. And and you know, he's he also has this other thing where he like if he's in the box uh, during a BP, he'll, like he won't let himself hit if he feels like he swung at a pitch that was out of the zone. He'll like stop doing the drill and just like leave to punish himself. So he's he's just kind of weird like that. And I think it's probably a pretty endearing thing. And you know I think if you're a coach or a manager, you love that type of stuff because this guy wants to be good. A real stand-up guy, clearly committed, clearly driven. I guess I, I question the form that this particular commitment takes, but if that could be channeled yes. into the right avenue. I enjoyed the quote that you got from the Angel Strength and Conditioning Coach yeah. when you asked about that trading method. Extremely non-committal quote. There's a lot of methods. <laughs> and he said it exactly how you think he said it. <laughs> yeah. As long as he gets the results we need. Well, we'll see. So you mentioned Ron Washington. He's the manager of the Angels now. That's a change. So how did Wash get to be the guy? And how has camp been different so far with Wash there? I mean, I think that the process involved a lot of a lot of old Angels players that they had talked to, uh, maybe not in a super formal way, but in a preliminary way, like, you know, like Tori Hunter or Kurt Suzuki or Darren Erstad. All those guys were under consideration for the managerial job. That being said, they wanted to, in the end, the last two candidates were, were Buck Showalter and Ron Washington. I think that's because, you know, they really wanted experience and Wash was just, you know, it's. I, th- I think that they felt like in this moment in time of this era of Angels baseball, like Wash was the guy that was going to give them the best chance. I mean, you know, they get look around. I mean, they're cutting payroll. They lost Otani. There are a lot of reasons to be down on the Angels, and I think that they're hoping that whatever Wash can bring is is, you know, it's coaching, it's teaching, it's it's motivation. It's like, you know, they're they're hoping that. The, the Angels front office and their ownership and everyone is, who, who runs this organization is, is not necessarily willing to spend a lot this year, but they are willing to kind of bank on improvement uh, of a lot of their younger players. And I think that's really the whole hope this year. I'm not saying it's a smart strategy. I think that they've uh, kind of fumbled this offseason in big time. I mean, I like some of the bullpen moves they made, but there's nothing else besides that. You know, you look at a coach like Ron Washington and this guy's a teacher. I mean, I, you look, you look, walk outside every morning. I get there. He's already been hitting fungos for hours to these guys. And, 
And, you know, not many managers do that. So, you know, he's a guy that's going to come in and, and not let nonsense fly. And, and he's going to have credibility with the players as a guy who's gotten to two World Series. So there's there's an upside to it. But is is it just like a PR move to, like, have someone that people like and want to hear from? Or is it really based in let's make this team competitive? And it's probably somewhere in between. I like the hire. I just don't know if they've done enough to give him a winning product. I think that one of the things that I was the most interested in when the Washington hire was announced was how his sort of approach to uh, a roster was going to interact with Anthony Rendon, because I don't think there's anyone in, in baseball who's want is as unequivocally endorsed as Ron Washington's. And then there's Rendon, who is like this very weird mix of stuff, right? And whose desire to play baseball at all, as you've reported, has been called into question at various points over the course of his tenure with the Angels, even though this has been sort of a persistent attitude for him pretty much his entire baseball playing career. So maybe we can use that as a springboard to talk about Rendon and sort of what the state of things are with him from a health perspective and sort of what you expect from him in 2024. I think, you know, it's, it's Rendon does himself no favors. You know, I, I almost feel bad for him after like what happened a couple of weeks ago when he came in and talked and, you know, everything just blew up. And, you know, he said that baseball isn't a top priority to me. And everyone kind of looked at that comment as the comment, like where he says baseball is not a top priority. I mean, that, that I have no, I don't think it should be. I mean, I don't, I agreed with him on the front like that. And then the issue is like, nobody should disagree with that. Like, obviously, right. your family's more important, your faith's yeah. more important. What's more important, like, nobody should say that your job's more important than those things. What I took away from those, like, the comments was when, you know, when I asked him, like, well, do you want to be here? And he says, well, I don't want to be here at 7 a.m. talking to you. And then I said, well, do you want to play base, be playing baseball for the Angels? And he doesn't really, he just said, stop, stop asking me that. It's like, he won't say that he wants to be here. And that to me is the part that, if I'm an Angels fan or if I'm a baseball fan or if I'm someone who's just watching this from the outside, that's the part that's a red flag to me. There's no issue with him not making baseball the top priority in his life. But yeah, I mean, and I think that kind of dovetails into the other parts of the question, which is, you know, what what is this year going to look like? I mean, it's so hard to predict with him. But I mean, what we've seen from him when he has been healthy for the last couple of years is pretty diminished power. Uh, he's made quite a few errors in the field. You know, he's been working hard this spring. I mean, you know, you go there, he's work, he's doing stuff after drills. He's there before. I mean, he's he's not, you know, he's not lollygagging. He's not like, you know, doing what probably a lot of people think he's doing. Right. Is that going to mean? Is that going to mean that he's actually the all-star capital caliber player? I have no idea. I'd, I'd be somewhat surprised. I mean, you don't usually come off of three straight injury-filled seasons at like the age of thirty-three or thirty-four and suddenly, you know, get a lot better. You know, so I, I'd be surprised by that. And, you know, his his power was, like I said, it just he wasn't he he wasn't hitting anything hard, really. He was hitting, you know, he's good at, you know, finding holes. He's good at, you know, going to the opposite field when the there's like a runner at second or whatever. He's, you know, he, he does certain things really well. But is he going to be like a even like a 750 OPS guy? Like, to be honest with you, that might surprise me a little bit. But I, he, it's hard to predict with him, given just how little he's played. Yeah, we've devoted parts of multiple podcasts to exploring <laughs> the psyche of Anthony Rendon, spurred in yeah. part by your reporting. He's a fascinating figure. We admire his frankness in some respects. I do too. Yeah. I love it. See, that's the thing is like, uh, you know, I've got no, everyone thinks I, I don't like him. I, it's not the cake. And it always, because it's, you know, it's always me who's like writing about in our interactions. Right. He's a, he's know, a frequent it, foil for you and the other Angels reporters just because yeah, he, yeah, he's not yeah, forthcoming. But he, in a lot of ways, like when you get him, he is really, he's like that. This is all honesty. I think a lot of guys wouldn't say what he said. Right. Um, and you know what? I give him credit for being honest. I really do. I think it's it's refreshing. 
he's pr- he's pretty friendly guy. He could be like sarcastic, snarky, and he could snip at you a little bit if he doesn't like your questions. But like, he's pretty friendly and like, I think a genuinely good person. It's just it's tough if you're not like a hundred percent wanting to be in a place to operate like you do. And and yeah. I have trouble having any sympathy for him because he's making you know thirty eight million dollars. There is a level of responsibility and a level of you know you got to be a face here if you're making that type of money, but I just don't think that he's, he's done it. He does himself no favors with, um, you know, maybe the way he communicates some of the things he says that are, uh, like I said, honest, but maybe not done tactfully. Yeah. I understand why Angels fans have these questions about him. And I, I do wish as someone who has enjoyed his game very much, not just his quote media game, but his on the field game in the past. Yeah. It'd be nice if we could talk about that instead of his desire to play or whether his injuries are real or as serious as he says. It'd be great if we could see the great Anthony Rendon again, because he was Absolutely. an incredible player. You mentioned the rebuilt bullpen, which was just about all the Angels did this offseason and it did need to be rebuilt. I think it was 27th in Fangraph's war last year, and that's kind of been a consistent problem for the Angels, even as the names have shuffled. When we did the Tigers preview recently, I mentioned there was a a not-so-pleasing symmetry in the projections for them where they were projected to be 22nd in both bullpen war and starting rotation war. Well, the Angels have that same symmetry, but even worse. 23rd is their projected figure in, in both of those. Could it be better? How could it be better? And did they do enough? And what did they do to try to rebuild that unit? I sometimes think with bullpens, it's like it's about it's about stacking up guys that that you think could be good because you know it's such a fickle and like like look at like a lot of the guys that they signed in that bullpen were guys that like had really good years a couple years ago maybe and and were down last year like Adam Simber is someone who's had a really good career but had a really bad 2023 and they even had someone who was very similar in December like a Jimmy Hergit who was an elite righty righty you know pitcher last uh, two years ago but was like up and down in the minor leagues all last season so you know I, I I like what they did because I think they just have the depth to withstand poor performances now you know, you got guys, and they've got guys with options. They didn't have that at the beginning of last year. They were really just like, they were like locked in with all these guys that kind of had no roster flexibility. And so they, they put themselves in a little better position with the bullpen. And, and it was a huge issue last year. I mean, that they were like one of the worst teams. I think Perry talked about that. And like Perry Minazzi and the GM talked about like their, their plus minus in like the sixth and seventh inning. And so I, I think what, what he's hoping, if I, if I had to kind of be a mind reader here, that if they shore up that area and they get a little bit of improvement out of guys like Sandoval and Detmers and, you know, Canning and Silseth in the rotation, then all of a sudden you might have some pretty good pitching and that could carry them and be, you know, a catalyst for them being successful this year. I think it also puts them in a position where, and if they're not in contention at the deadline, you have a lot of relievers on one-year deals that or on expiring contracts that you theoretically could just trade and, and kind of rebuild your farm system like that a little bit. So... It's it's not a bad strategy. It's just if you really are serious, just anything with the Angels, they're so like in, they're like in this purgatory where like there's not really a direction and there's not really a plan. And so, you know, which way are you going? Are you trying to win this year? Because if you're trying to win this year, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to only address the bullpen after losing a nine more player off a 73 win team. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's like <laughs> I think that's like the silliness of all this is they keep saying they want to win, but then they don't do anything to really do to put themselves in that position, like what they do with the bullpen. I, uh, I'm really concerned with their infield because they don't have like anybody as a backup. I mean, they've already had two guys kind of, you know, get banged up. And then, you know, even on the outfield, they've got five guys, but how many of them can you really rely on right now? So it's, 
there's some huge question marks on this team, and it's like anything with the Angels. It's always the what if. Can these guys perform? Can this? Can that? But we'll see. It's But uh, I'm never going to project them to be good again until they actually show they can. Right. And you mentioned that Washington, in theory, should be good in working with the young guys. Now, there are only so many young guys on this team, and we've talked about one of them, Shanuel. I want to ask about the prospects or lack thereof in a second, but maybe we can talk about the few other big league guys who are exciting, not in the Adele kind of uh, post-hype sleeper or are they still a prospect category, but genuinely impressive debut seasons for Logan Ohapi in particular and Zach Neto also to an extent. And then there's Reed Detmers. Those three guys, I guess you could include Silseth also, they're all in the 23, 24-year-old range. If there is any hope for the Angels to contend, those guys have to become the core. So what progress do you think they can be expected to make this season? I'm really excited about Logan Ohapi this year. I think that guy has a superstar potential in him, in my opinion. I mean, he's, you yeah. know, especially at the catcher position where, like, you know, you, you, any offense is a bonus. And he seems to have quite a bit of it and a lot of pop and the ability to really play, like, regularly like almost every day i know that wash wash was talking today about wanting him to go 125 135 games if there's someone you're going to be really building around i look at logan ohapi as that guy you know for the future and and really for the present too i mean i, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a great year this year just given what we saw i mean he, in september i think he had like nine home runs after coming back from what everyone thought was going to be a sh- season-ending shoulder injury in like mid-april last year so um i'm really impressed with him you know, I, 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 Reed Detmers is another one where it's like we've seen what he can do through a no-hitter against a good team in the Rays. And, and he's he almost uh, no-hit the Rangers last year ended up winning the World Series. I think he was like four outs from doing that. So he's what he's on in his game, this guy could be really, really elite. When he's walking guys and getting frustrated with himself and it's just not really working, it's, you know, you're, you're ticketed for like, three the three and a third like four walks five runs and it's just ugly so um you know since now he's gonna be his fourth season in the big leagues um not full season i think third full season and just i think it's time for him to kind of hey this is your time to step up and show what you can do and and you know really become a reliable major league pitcher same with patrick sandoval so you know there's there's reasons to be optimistic about certain you know young players i think zach netto is i'm curious to see how durable you know, he, he can kind of be, that's a back issues, which are always concerning. And then when he uh, came back last year, it's just his offense really kind of fell off a cliff. But when he was really good, like in June and May and, and, you know, the first few months of his career, I think everyone was incredibly excited about him. So there's no reason why he can't figure that out again. But, you know, like I said, with anything with this team, it's 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 all hope. That's kind of how they uh, keep, keep people coming in the games, even if it's... It's, you know, there's, it's kind of dried up at times. So the prospect question, I don't think the Angels had a, a single guy on the recent Fangraphs Top 101. They did not. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Meg can confirm. Shanuel just barely cracked the, the bottom of the MLB pipeline, Top 100. Baseball Prospectus recently did its organizational ranking of all 30 teams, and the Angels were dead last. And the blurb from Jeff Paternostro was, I don't know if the 2024 Angels are the weakest organization I've written up over my nine list cycles at BP, but they are at least in the conversation. So that's not encouraging. 
Also not encouraging, you have written about some of the change in personnel and philosophy and player development. Did Troy Percival complaining about technology lead to heads rolling? Pitching coordinator Buddy Carlisle was let go and then instantly snapped up by the Rays, which... Yeah, it's never a good sign, right? <laughs> never a great sign. <laughs> I mean, good sign for Buddy Carlisle, but maybe yeah. not so much for the Angels, so... Is there any hope here? Is this an evaluation issue? Is it a development issue? Is it an ownership issue? I'm guessing you're going to say it's probably all of it. it. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I mean, it's it's like, I, I just go back to the trade deadline last year. Where you, I mean, that Edgar Caro, if you're talking about a prospect, this guy is going to be an everyday player in the big leagues. I think everyone kind of sees that. And it's and I, if you're talking about top 100, I'm pretty sure he's in the middle of the pack of, of all those top 100 polls. And they traded him for Lucas Giolito and... Ronaldo Lopez. They also traded Kai Bush, who was, you know, their number two prospect. They traded their top two prospects last year for two guys that were spent about a month on the team before getting waived for nothing. That's just an epic failure. I don't, I don't care the reasons behind it or the thought behind it, which I think everybody could have reasonable disagreements about. At the end of the day, you gave away, you basically gave away two of your top prospects and really a prospect who is, you know, going to be a major leaguer and probably going to be a pretty good one. They got like two guys, I would say, right now in their prospect system that I I think will impress a lot of people. Nelson Rada and Caden Dana. Nelson Rada is probably, you know, maybe someday going to replace Trout in center. And he's 18 years old. He's had a really good camp, and Caden Dana's impressive too. But beyond that, I mean, it's uh, not it's not there's not chock full of great players. And I know the Angels always try to talk to us and you know convince us that their system's a little better than it is. But I mean. There's enough of, I trust the evaluators on this. I trust the impartial evaluators, the ones that rank all 30 teams. I know it's not a foolproof system, but uh, enough people say that the Angels system is as bad as it looks on paper, and I'll, I'll trust that. I think it's development. I've written plenty about, you know, the way that they've, you know, treated minor leaguers, the, you know, the resources that they've given them. Uh, and that's obviously improved over the last couple of years due to like the union and due to Major League Baseball mandates improving the, that, that, you know, area. But the Angels were always one of the worst, if not the worst, in that in that uh, department. Like you said, I mean, there's they've made changes to their player development system that uh, you know it's hard to assess exactly what the the benefits are to that. But you, we do know that Troy Percival came in and <laughs> had an issue with something, and then you know people get fired. That's just that's if that's how your system is working, then it's it's not smart and it's not based in you know good judgment and uh, thoughtful performance reviews and things like that. So that would concern me if I was, you know, coming to work here. This is, and then, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the trades. It's the calling guys up after, you know, one day in the minor leagues. Like, you know, I'm sure if they had Shanoel and Neto and Nohapi still in their minor league system, you know, they, they'd probably have a little bit better numbers. But right. at the end of the day, it's, it's what it is. And I think there's just so many flaws, you know, in player development right now. Uh, with the Angels, that uh, you know, it's it's there's a reason why they're they're 30th or 29th or 28th or wherever you know the experts are ranking them. All right. Well, our last question is: What would constitute success for this team this season? Success obviously has been hard to come by for the Angels of late. Artie Moreno, as far as we know, has not had second thoughts about his second thoughts about selling the team. So <laughs> that doesn't seem like it's about to change. So. What would be a successful season relative to expectations and recent history for the 2024 Angels? I think a successful season would be some of these younger players getting through full year 
and improving and and you you feel like you're at a good position heading into next season to actually compete. If they get to the trade deadline and they, they deal some of these relievers, get a couple good prospects here and there and you know, can enter twenty twenty five feeling like that's a year to compete, they actually do the process of rebuilding to some extent, then that's successful. I wouldn't count on that. Uh, I think if you look at wins and losses, I mean my guess has always been 77. That's what I've been saying. People ask me, 77 and 85. I think that's a reasonable expectation, maybe even optimistic. Yeah, if you, if you got these guys, these younger players, you know, showing improvement and, and staying healthy, that's that's all you can ask for, I think, out of this out of this team. But, hey, man, baseball's weird. I don't know. They could be the worst team in the league. They can make the playoffs. It's I think there's it's, it's a weird game like that, and I, I would say the former is more likely than the latter, but, yeah, you never know. You've perfectly pegged what the playoff odds say about the Angels, which is 77 wins. And i got to <laughs> say that that would be a form of success if the Angels lost Shohei Otani and won more games than they did with him. I mean, <laughs> they have to, they'd have to stay healthy for that to happen. I mean, they had right. so many injuries last year, but there's reasons for that, too. I mean, that's, you know, they let go. They changed up two of their, their both their strength and conditioning guys because they didn't feel like they felt like some of those injuries were, you know, rooted in. I mean, it's just so many things here that make me scratch my head. I don't, I never know. So I'll say 77 and that's optimistic probably. <laughs> yeah. That'd be the ultimate irony if they won more games without Otani than they did in either 2023 or 2022 or the same number that they won in 2021. Right. It would make you feel even more that, hey, if you had Otani, then maybe you could have won even more games with him. <laughs> but oh yeah, we'll see what happens. Since we had you on a year ago to talk about the lack of Spanish language broadcast, did I recently see some news on on that front, is there some development there? I actually am not 100 percent sure. I can. Yeah. I, I should probably check in on. I, I know that they had um, the Angels had made an effort, I believe, to include them to to give them a booth at the beginning of last season, and mm-hmm. that uh, the station just wasn't doing it. Uh, yeah. So I, I think the Angels maybe have made some good steps on that front, but I'm not, I don't want to speak too authoritatively on it since I haven't. I have probably haven't followed up on it as much as I should have. But it's an important topic, and you know, there's a lot of Spanish-speaking, you know, baseball fans in Orange County and in the LA and LA County. And, and, you know, that, that fan base, it's, it's, you're just doing your, your own business as a disservice by not engaging the fan base as much as you possibly can. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you go to Dodgers games and it's clear that they make an effort on that front. So it's, uh, I would encourage the angels to do it. And I'm not hundred percent sure how much they have or they haven't over the last year. All right. Well, we appreciate your coverage of the Angels. And if anyone's less interested in the Angels now that Shoei Otani doesn't play for them, Sam is covering some other teams sometimes too. So I'm glad people are getting to read you one way or another. But you can follow his coverage of the Angels and assorted other teams at The Athletic. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right, that will do it for today. Blue Jays and Reds coming up on our next preview pod. One follow-up, I talked last time about Juan Soto's defense, how he seemed to be giving his all in the outfield in spring trading to an almost worrisome degree. Well, listener Justin wrote in to notify me of an item in the Boston Globe the other day. Pete Abraham reported Jackie Bradley Jr. spent time in Miami during the offseason working with Juan Soto on becoming a better outfielder. Presumably Soto was learning how to become a better outfielder, not the other way around. Both players are represented by Scott Boris. Bradley is still unsigned, but who knows? Maybe he instilled some extra aggressiveness in Soto. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jack, Ben Lemonstein, Jeremy Raff, Oliver Williams, and Scott Terry. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, 
prioritized email answers, cameo-style videos, autograph books, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash EffectivelyWild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email. Send your questions and comments to podcast at Fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash EffectivelyWild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild thanks to shane mckeon for his editing and production assistance we'll be back with one more episode before the end of the week which means we will talk to you soon does baseball look the same to you as it does to me when we look at baseball how much do we see well the curveball's bend and the home runs fly more to the game than meets the eye to get the stats compiled and the stories filed fans on the internet might get riled but we can break it down on effectively wild